0: Welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We're here on episode 116. And before I click the record button, Mike and I were discussing the problems of the world.
1: Yes, we were.
0: (laughs) Our own lives and uh, thinking of devious solutions to uh, make adult music uh, become dominant in uh, the music podcast world.
1: And we still have no ideas about how to do that. So here we are again. (laughs) (laughs) We're just talking about the music again. (laughs) But but please, we do get a lot of gratuitous advice about how to do it that uh, we're obviously not going to follow. So. If you're a new listener, I'm your co-host Russ, and over there is Mike. This is Mike, yeah. Do, do I sound bitter tonight? I don't know. It was, it was a rough week. That's all. I don't know. In classical music, I got, I got some stuff I want to talk about here that's interesting, but uh, I don't know. I'm not as excited this week as I was last week with the really fantastic piano albums mm. that we heard. This week I thought, oh, choral music, this will be fun. But it wasn't an organ music too. But uh, on the classical end, I mean, it was good, but it wasn't as great as last week. So Mm. anyway, we'll go through it. I'll let you know when we get to that. I'll cheer you up with all Mm. the cool organ jazz I've got after that. That was good. Yeah, there was some good organ jazz this week. I want to just mention, you had passed on the Larry Golding recording Mm. uh, this week, and I listened to that this week as you sent it to me. I did like the oozing bass in it, but you made... You made a good choice to put these three instead of that one. I mean, that one, like you said, it's been reviewed. He's a pretty well-known organist and keyboardist, so uh, that'll get listened to anyway. But uh, yeah, I got to say, I liked these more unknown ones a lot better. I think it's
0: a nice little program, so looking Mm -hmm. forward to uh, getting to that. When we get there, uh, as part of our normal six recording program every week we bring you three classical and three jazz releases and then for those you can find links in the episode description there's spotify there there's apple music there everything we'll discuss right at the uh, top there's also a link to the full episode playlist you can listen to all of it most of the time on deezer when they don't forget the tracks
1: i don't know what we're going to do this week because we got another uh yeah next next week because yeah Yeah. we got another like deezer recording that isn't like complete i don't know what's going on here
0: anyway that's our preferred CD quality streaming platform. And you can also listen to the podcast there, and get the podcast and all the recordings in the same place. Just look us up, username Adult music Podcast. Now, if you don't see the full description or the links aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always jump over to our host site, podbean, dot com. Everything's easy to follow there for all the episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a music loving friend If you take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations, and we can grow our audience that way. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook, get some extra info. I put
1: up a lot of releases uh, this week. Lots of good jazz came out this month. And I put up like almost nothing in classical, (laughs) although there are a few good classical stuff. Hmm. There's some really interesting classical stuff coming up that I haven't heard yet, but I'm really curious about it. I'll see if I can put a few of those up, but we'll see. Because I haven't really checked it out yet.
0: So check us out on Facebook. You can leave a message or comment there as well. And if you want to get in touch directly by email, any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also collaborating with a few other music-related podcasts we'd like to recommend. You can find links to them at the bottom of the episode description, and at the end of the episode audio, there will be little promos from each one. The first one is Tom Galker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast featuring interviews with well-known musicians and usually centered around a cool theme. There's also Famous Interviews and Neon Jazz by Joe DiMino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. and then. The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. That's Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each episode, and they play snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original
1: and the different versions. So please do check those out. Yeah, and that last one, Same Difference, is a podcast that I, the classical guy, am very interested in because it's given me a lot of good information about jazz.
0: I don't have many standards this week, but I do have some things with uh, historical significance oh, I'm to uh, look in into. Yeah. I'm always interested to look back when things originally were performed and recorded. So
1: I love that Hammond organ sound, too. We got a lot of that in jazz this week. Oh, no, it's full of it. Yeah.
0: And well, before we get into the music here, I think uh, we're going to have to roll out the uh, farewell theme again this week.
1: Oh, yeah, I just got. I was all ready to go for this podcast, and then at the last minute, like before, like I got on. So I just got the news that uh, we have a death and uh, in the classical music world. And uh, so here's a here's our theme. Let me get over to the piano. And this week we lost Ingrid Habler, the Austrian pianist who was known as Madame Mozart due to her exquisite interpretations of Mozart's music. She died last week on 14 May. So while we were doing this uh, recording last week on the, the piano recording, you know, we did a piano episode too, which is kind of interesting. And she was 96 years old. So that's a good long life. I want to say something about this. It seems to me, in classical music anyway, pianists and conductors seem to live a very long time. And I have a theory about why this is. Now, if anybody's ever done Tai Chi, they say that Tai Chi, like uh, the, the, the resting pose where you have your arms out, is supposed to allow your Chi energy to flow and that gives you longer life. And that's pretty much the position that conductors and pianists spend most of their working life in. So uh, I'm wondering about that. Anyone wants to write a thesis about <laughs> that? Yeah, <that's laughs> or check one. into that, do it up. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's another my, one of my wacky theories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think music in general keeps you uh, young and keeps your brain active anyway. And we'll I think see. it depends
1: on how you live. I mean, classical musicians tend to live pretty clean lives. I mean, the technique that's required, like you know, mm. sort of you know, you have to kind of. It's it's almost like uh, being an athlete. You know, you have to kind of stay yeah. healthy or take care of your body, at least in the. In the sense of, you know, your brain, right. you know, and uh, hand coordination and things like that, and that requires some uh, some work. I think I saw that uh, Ron
0: Carter is 86. that's yeah, amazing. And this week, uh, George Coleman just put out a new live recording on Cellar Live, and he's 88.
1: There were a lot of very um aged um jazz musicians too, which is nice to see because yeah, in the they past, used to not make it. The <laughs> they used to not make it because they were all like on heroin or something. Yeah. You know, they would just kind of die these early yeah, deaths, which is really sad. They were all legends, but now, yeah, a lot of them are living to be very old, which is nice to see. Yeah, and staying active—that's great. And staying active too. Well, that's—I think that's part of it. Yeah, you stay active, you just live longer. I mean, once you feel like uh, people don't need you anymore, <laughs> yeah. you just don't. You know. Some so, something happens to you. You just kind of shut down, and that's the yeah. end. I, I see that with um, there's a there's a Catholic priest here in um in uh, Kyoto where we live, um, Father McDonald, who's uh, oh man, he's got to be he's got to he's got to be closing in on 95 by now. And uh, just after a mass, he once um, I don't know that he's doing mass anymore, but um. He was just surrounded by people like baptizing babies and stuff like this. I mean, they all need him. So, you know, I think that just kind of keeps him going. You know, that's that sort of thing. I was kind of observing that. So Mm. stay useful, people. (laughs) Right. That's what we're doing with this podcast. We're staying we we intend to be doing this into our nineties. So (laughs) it we'll be talking a lot slower then, but that's okay. We'll still be listening. Hopefully my hearing will hold up, you know, we'll see. Okay, so Ingrid Habler, rest in peace, I should say. Okay, so Let's see. So Habler, let me say a little more about her. She was the quintessential Viennese musician exuding warmth, clarity, and poise. This is an article I read about her. And she also had the wit and imagination to compose and perform her own delightful cadenzas. She was really famous for her Mozart playing, but she played everything from Bach to Bartók, so modernists, (laughs) and that was pretty much her repertoire. Now, we think, uh, oh, she didn't play anything past Bartok, but remember, she was 96. That was her era. Right. <laughs> and that, you know, modern pianists play music from today as well. So maybe we'll hear some of that in the future, too, because I've got another good piano recording coming up soon. All right. Are we getting into this?
0: We're going to uh, start out with some new recording of very old music this week, I think.
1: A new recording of very old music. Okay, now I picked this one because it's... um an Italian composer. I just love Italian Baroque. It's, it, there's something about it to me. It just kind of, it just feels like a new world coming into being. Because before the Baroque, there was the uh, Renaissance era, mostly masses, polyphonic music. And Baroque music was polyphonic as well. But the Baroque was invented in Italy. It pretty much started around the year 1600. And uh, Monteverdi was the first great Baroque era composer. Now I want to inform people, I'll give you a little bit of history. The word Baroque was um it means like um like a misshapen pearl. So it implies something ugly. It it kind of means it's the word that Renaissance era composers would apply to this new kind of music. Oh, that music, it's so awful, it's ugly, it's Baroque. Okay, but they just kinda <laughs> they just kinda went with it. I guess I guess jazz is the same way because it was kinda I think the word jazz J S S. Right. Was like an insulting term, I guess, to uh, describe this music. And Then they just took it on, and uh, now it's a very cool word. You know, it's got two Z's mm. at the end. I think it's it's uh it's rather unique or really like that. But anyway, the Baroque era, they kind of was the same sort of thing. It was something new and something kind of unwelcome to certain composers, but it took off and dominated uh, European music for 150 years, and a little bit after that too, until the death of Bach and the rise of uh, classical era music with Haydn and Mozart. Anyway, this composer that we're talking about now is going to be Girolamo Frescobaldi. What a great name. Oh, you know. <laughs> anyway, this is his uh, Fiori Musicali, or organ masses, and these were um, published in 1635. Now, that's the early Baroque. Um, Bach was born in 1685, so this is, what, 50 years before Bach was born. So this is still the days when the Italian Baroque was the new thing and it was dominating everything. This is played by Richard Lester on the organ, and that was something that drew me to this recording too. I've heard uh, Richard Lester, uh, some other recordings that he's on, and I really like his playing. He tends to play organs that maybe they're not really old. This one was um, built in 1983. Yeah, it's the organ at St. John's Church, Totnes, Devon, built by William Drake Limited in 1983, but it has a very old kind of sound to it, and that always attracts me. He's basically the only player on this, but it's also credited to the Greenwood consort directed by Mark Bennett. But all they really do is um, a few Gregorian chants to um, fill in the, uh, the bits of the mass. And this is on the Psalm Recordings label. Now, we did a re- recording of them early by them earlier of, um, oh, who's that guy? The Israeli guy? Borenstein, Nimrod right. Borenstein. And he was on the Psalm label. And we really liked that recording. So I thought, oh. And they actually um, gave us like a, a like or something yeah. like that on Facebook. They were they responded to us, so we were happy about that. And I said, oh, we'll have to give another recording of them. And this Frescobaldi one was available. I thought I would do this. Okay, so Fiori Musicali. It's, uh was Frescobaldi's last work. Now, I mostly know him for his like keyboard or harpsichord music. So I don't know much of his organ music, and I thought this would be great. The organ mass in which choir and organ alternate. Well, it's not really a choir, but... Um, This dates back to the early 15th century or the 1400s, 200 years before these Masses were written. And after the year 1600, the Credo, this is really interesting, the Credo, the, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Mm. Almighty, that prayer, was forbidden to be sung in church Mm. and was notably recited aloud. Uh, There's a lot of really interesting uh, church history that you can learn uh, via music. So there you go. Anyway, one of the things that it kind of... uh, (laughs) We were talking about Deezer, and uh, one of the things that annoyed me about uh, this particular release on Deezer is they um, called this Fury Musicali Excerpts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really not excerpts. I mean, these are all the organ music for the complete masses, but certain tracks were left out because mm-hmm. of, um, you know, for example, there are lots of settings of the Kittier, and the organist gets to choose which one he's going to use on any particular day. But um, they're fairly com- as far as we're concerned. Well, yes. recently on Deezer, we get excerpts from lots of things. I know. <laughs> yeah. we, we have this, I don't know, Deezer, and it's it's all classical too. The jazz is okay with them, but uh, some classical releases, and this has been happening pretty consistently. Yeah, A lot of the classical releases are uh, missing a track or an entire work. Yeah, they still haven't
0: fixed the Sudbin recording, even though I sent them two
1: messages about yeah, it. Yeah, I sent so. them a message too, and yeah. they, they said something. And now one of the recordings we're going to talk about last week has an issue. I haven't <laughs> written to them about it yet, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, they need me in their classical music department, basically, is what's going on there. Anyway, we're not hearing all of the compositions here of the Fiori Musicali. Frescobaldi provided multiple settings of the Kyrie for each mass, and Lester chooses five of those for each particular Mm -hmm. mass so it's not excerpts but it's just let's say incomplete all right there are three masses on this album and they're basically they're organ masses so we're not going to hear any real singing we're going to hear chanting unison lines unison means there's no harmony or the harmony more accurately the harmony is all the same note so sort of what you would hear in chants at let's say a um a football pitch or a baseball game or something like that you know if somebody's gonna (laughs) sing something Song to encourage their team. Anyway, tracks one through nine, Misa number two, in Festis Duplicibus one. I don't know how to say one in Latin. Cunti potens genitor deus. I really wish I knew Latin. Uh what this means is uh in the double feasts, Festus duplicibus one, in the double feast one, and almighty God the Father. This is a ma- the Mass of the Apostles. I really don't know the um festival date for this. But it's a number of um I don't want to say movements, but it's organ works for the mass that are supposed to be played during the course of the mass. And uh, the first one is uh, Toccata Avanti la Messa degli Apostoli. This is very powerful. The organ sound is full, and we're going to get a lot of different organ sounds on this recording, which I thought was really, uh, made it interesting for me anyway, to hear what this organ can do or some of the things. Thankfully it's not overpowering, which wouldn't really be appropriate for this era. The recording is rich and captures the tone of the organ well. Um, this toccata has voices moving within chords. That's pretty common with a lot of Frescobaldi's music and with church music in general. Uh, the bass is particularly satisfying as it's way low down in frequency, and I have a subwoofer, and that just makes it sound great. Mm. Anyway, the second um, track is kyrie, and then there's a kyrie plain chant, and then another Kidie setting. So the organ is playing the vocal parts basically, which are polyphonic. At uh, 55 seconds, we hear the vocals sing the plain chant in unison and unaccompanied, as is the custom, uh, sounding like monks in a cloister. Uh, One of the wonderful things about if you ever go to a European church at the right time, you can actually hear if there are monks there, they'll often be chanting at certain hours of the day. Like There'll be some kind of like room in the back Mm. where they're chanting the prayers. It's really wonderful. Um, The organ then returns with the second Kyrie, more chord-based, and I love the warm sound of the organ in the second Kyrie. And I wish I knew the names of the stops being used. I'll try to describe them. Um, This one's very breathy in its attack. And one of the things I really love about this particular organ is in the the breathier tones. You can actually hear something in the pipes opening to allow the air out. It's it's kind of like a mechanical like ch, ch sound. And it's just, I think it adds a lot. I really like that sound a lot. Like the pipes are kind of making some kind of effort or something. Maybe Richard Lester will get in touch with us and let us know what that is. Track 3, Criste Plain Chant, Criste, and another Criste Plain Chant. Remember, the Criste, I'm sorry, the credo couldn't be sung. The Criste is okay. Anyway, vocal sing the Plain Chant. At the 16th second mark, the Criste setting is played by the organ, and it has an appealing light feel to it. The melody going up to the high register. Again, voices moving within solid-sounding chords, and we hear another Plain Chant at the end. Then there's another Kyrie, followed by a Kyrie Plainchant, followed by a Kyrie in track four. Here the organ comes in loudly and powerfully with the Kyrie. This is more brassy and full-toned. The vocals sing the Plainchant, then the organ comes in brightly and full-toned, also with some volume. This sounds celebratory in its brightness and movement. Now the way Lester is um, interpreting this, as far as the stops go, his mass has a lot of variety to it there's a lot of mm. <laughs> things to draw the ear uh, throughout the mass now when you're listening to this you should keep in mind you're not hearing these you know track by track there would be um parts of the mass recited or whatever activities are done during the mass and then you hear organ music accompanying some of them and uh in some cases like as sort of a pause between the uh elements of the mass track 5 canzon dopo le pistola unusual as it begins with a slow chordal introduction. The stop used is focused and powerful and brassy. At the 31 second mark the texture becomes agitated moving away from the solid sustained chords that started the section. There's a dancing quality to the voices in this one. At 2 minutes and 3 seconds a completely new texture is heard beginning with a repeated note and the rhythm is also upbeat and joyful. Track six Toccata Avanti e This is subdued so a little contrast Drones in the bass and conjunct movement in the upper voices. Conjunct means that they're moving sort of step by step. It's, there are no real leaps in the uh, melody or harmony. And uh, that it's kind of comforting to hear music like that. The organ stop is breathy, and perhaps um, named after a wind instrument, with a gauze feel over the tone. The uh, seventh uh, track, altro recarcare, another ricercare. Uh, Richard Kata is like a very common set of um, variations, I guess you can call them. It's actually a study on a certain theme. Mm. I don't know if I'd call it variations, but uh, the meaning is uh, what a Richard Carr would sound like really differed with a lot of different composers, so it's really hard to pinpoint. Anyway, this particular one, Track 7, sings out brightly in its opening high notes. This is a long section, 5 minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, most of the tracks on this album are 3 minutes or less. And it continues with moving voices with long-held chords. Uh, Richard Carr is exploring a motif as this one does, and it gives a sense of solidity to this um, theme. Track eight: Toccata per l'Elevazione. The l'Elevazione is the elevation of the host during the mass. Uh, Christians will know what I mean. This is reflective in mood; it usually is. And there's a Takana that follows this called uh, Richard Carr con Obligo del Basso Come appare, which isn't on the CD or streaming uh, for some reason. I mean, they could have put it on streaming, but they didn't. But you can apparently hear it at Psalm's website. I didn't actually check that it was there. Anyway, just so you know, if you're sort of an academic and really need to hear like <laughs> everything that was recorded for this album. There's a breathy attack on this track, a sound I really love on the organ. I could listen to an entire album of this particular organ stop. I really love it. And this one sounds particularly good. You can hear sudden breaths of air on the pipes as the note is pressed down, which I also love. It gives the organ an antique sound. You know, those new big powerful American organs are kind of, they don't really, I don't know <laughs> if they do this sound. This sound mimics the uh, the very old organs that you can right. sometimes hear in Italy. Anyway, track nine, canzon quartitoni dopo il post comune. This is after communion. A dancing full toned brassy sound with quite a bit of gleam on it. It's mostly played in the upper register with middle registers providing the anchoring bass tones. Some subtle low bass peaks in at times. At fifty-seven seconds the stop is changed and we get a breathier tone with the playing in the middle register. It ends brightly back in the higher range. So one of the things I'm noticing about this recording so far is between tracks, there are a lot of there's a lot of variety of, of um tone or timbre mm. let's say in the organ and that makes it really interesting for me so i really enjoyed that particular mass and really this entire album there's a lot of um invention in the music and also in uh lester's approach to it tracks 10 through 17 misa number one in dominicis infra anum, orbis factor this is for um an ordinary sunday mass it just means um for um sundays in the year Toccata avanti la messa della Domenica. So messa della Domenica would just be an ordinary Sunday mass. This one's in Dorian mode, and it's a, mm. I love modal harmony. It's a brief toccata with voices moving within chords, some rich bass pedals on the bottom end. The Kyrie, Kyrie planchette Kyrie, has a breathy, gentle attack. It's very solemn. It's an appealing setting. It's got a droning note in the mid-range as the bass moves, which is a little unusual. Uh, The Kyrie plain chant is heard, then the second Kyrie, more melodic than the first, played with different stops pulled, but still gentle and solemn. Track three, Kriste plain chant, Kriste, and Kriste plain chant. The plain chant is heard first. Uh, The organ's setting features sustained notes in the mid range as the lower and higher voices play melodies. It's a solemn sound played rather softly. By the end, there's a pedal bass anchoring the harmony. The Kriste plain chant is heard again. This time with a different melody. And track f- uh, the fourth section, that should be track uh, 13. Kirie, Kirie, playing and Kirie. We have another Kirie. A high drone accompanies moving bass and mid range voices playing melodies. I do like the way Fresco Baldi just puts the drone. Usually it goes in the pedal and the bass end, but um, mm. <laughs> he'll just put it anywhere in these pieces. And I found this really interesting. We hear the Kyrie chant, then another setting of the Kyrie in full organ voice. The attack is solid, tone is bright. The fifth section, Canzon Dopo la Pistola, track 14, has a dancing rhythm. The melodies are pretty lively. They're played polyphonically as in a fugue. There's a cadence at around the 50 second mark, then an extreme register change as we move to the twinkling high range of the organ. That whole... Kind of almost electronic sound that the high end of the organ makes makes you think of twinkling stars for some reason. It hmm. just feels like really high up in the, in the heavens to me. And I think the uh, composers who wrote for this instrument probably thought so too. Even the bass is in the upper range for most of this section. The section at the minute and 57second mark is in a different sound entirely. the sound we generally associate with the organ. It's bright and smooth, played in the full range of the instrument. Section 6, Carr: Dopo il Credo, is Richard Care again, this is a form. The CD booklet, by the way, claims that this section is only available on the Sam website, but it seems to be on the CD. I think that's probably a misprint in the booklet. Anyway, this starts with a steady pace to the rhythm. It sounds more measured than anything we've heard previously. With the melody gleaming out in the upper voices over a steady bass. Just after two minutes, a new section with a fuller, more powerful sounding organ tone begins. The seventh section, Toccata chromatica per l'elevazione. That's a word I love to hear. Chromatica. It means chromatic, which means all 12 tones. This is not like Schoenberg 12 tones, where there's an order <laughs> to them. But it means that there's no real key that you're just hearing all. Well, there is a key, but they'll use all of the uh, notes between to uh, an octave. Anyway, this is a poignant sounding section. There's a wavering tone to the breathy attack. The whole sound of the organ on this track catches the ear. It's played quietly and with a poignancy Lester described it with in his notes. I love this type of intimate breathy organ sound. And this particular piece, a soothed and calmed me. Sample this if you're interested in the organ. In the If you're interested in this album, I would sample this track, it's track 16, Toccata Chromatica per l'elevazione. And uh, by the way, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, listen to Boxer Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue, and you'll see why I love chromatic music so much. It's really <laughs> interesting. Anyway, the last section of this particular mass, Canzon post il comune, so this is the song after communion. We have a breathy, fluty tone here and a cheerful, dancing melody, which is uplifting. The sound changes to a brighter, brassy tone at around the minute and 20 second mark, and the music becomes less rhythmic and more melodic. A more dancing rhythm starts in the same tone at the three minute mark as the piece cheers up again and ends on a positive feeling chord. And we need that positivity these days, don't we? For sure. Yes. Solidity, positivity, tonic notes. I love it. The 20th century did away with a lot of this. So this, I think this is part of the reason why we like this old music so much, because yeah. there is a sense of arrival and solidity to it. And that makes us, um, it just gives us a sense, a, a feeling that we have a center, I think, right. or that there's something holding down things. Anyway, tracks 18 through 27 is the third mass. Misa number three, Infestus Beate Maria Virginis Cum Jubilo. This is for the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I don't know the feast day though. Anyway, the first track is uh, Toccata Avanti la Messa della Madonna, the Toccata before the Mass. This is a majestic sound. Uh, the brief Toccata has an appealing rising figure leading into droning chords with cascading figures in the middle. Second section Kirie, Kirie, plain and Kirie. The first Kirie is rather slow and methodical in its unwinding. The attack is a bit cushioned, uh, but the timbre is bright. There's a plain chant, and then the second kyrie has an even softer attack, and is played in the lower end of the keyboard. I do like the way Richard Lester, as the uh, organist, keeps us guessing as to what sound he's going to use in the next section. I really rather he you know was always kind of con- you know trying to g- guess yeah. and sort of uh, anticipating that, and it made this album really interesting to listen to. The second kyrie is contemplative and rather slow, and much less bright than the opening kyrie. Uh, section three. This is going to be track twenty. Criste plain chant. Criste. Criste plain chant starts with the plain chant. The organ. Criste. Sorry, has the light, heavenly, spacious sound that arpeggiated figures in the high end of the keyboard produce. It's a very churchy sound. The Christe plain chant is heard again in a new melody. Yeah, if you ever go to Italy, and uh, for example, you can go to the um, the basilica. I mean the um, The Duomo in Florence, or really almost any city, and you see the um, the statues of these um, saints or holy figures, and above them there'll be the starry vault. Um, The starry vault is like a symbol of heaven. That that's where they are. They're like in this other plane. So um, I feel like uh, this sound on the organ is the equivalent of that sort of (laughs) image (laughs) in the arts. So if you happen to be in Europe listening to this, check that out and think about it. It's, It's I don't know, I feel like it just kind of lifts me up a bit just to even contemplate this sort of thing. Anyway, track 21, this is section 4, Kyrie, Kyrie, Planchant, Kyrie. This has full-sounding chords, the first Kyrie, played mezzo forte, and they characterize the opening Kyrie. We hear the Kyrie Planchant in a melody reaching to a higher, soaring range of the voices. A full tone after the chant is played forte with a brassy, bright sound. Fifth section, track 22, Canzon Dopo L'Epistola. Uh, based on a Flamengo dance tune from the Low Countries, which we think of as the Netherlands. There's a missing Reshikar dopo il credo that's only available on Psalm's website here. Now, this is a dancing song that opens in the very high range of the organ with a bouncing repeated note followed by a dancing melody. There's counterpoint in the lower voices. It lifts the heart with its charming themes. At a minute and 40 seconds, a lower, more deliberately paced version of the song begins again with contrapuntal lines. Sixth section, track 23. Am I counting these tracks right? I hope so. Toccata Avanti, Il Recercar, starts on a low bass keyboard note, which is possibly a high pedal. It, it sounds like it's in the keyboard range though. Um, but the melody line starts at its highest point and works its way down the keyboard, settling into a high melody afterwards, and it has a soft attack. Next track, 23, this is section seven, Recercar con obligo di cantare la quinta parta senza tocarla. Got that? Okay, let me explain. Lester remarks, it's unclear what text is supposed to be sung here. So what this obligo di cantare, cantare is to sing. There's a required singing part is what this means. Richard Lester remarks in his notes, it's unclear what text is supposed to be sung here. But let's just suggest the words Ave Maria seem appropriate, and that's what he has the uh, choir sing. In unison, again, there's no harmony. Uh, this starts with a breathy tone in the high voices of the organ. There's a sung text used, Ave Maria in Latin, Ave Maria di Gratia, and um, the rest. It's sung in unison harmony as a chant. The performance is soothing and reassuring for its chant-like repeated melody on the sung text. 8th section, Toccata per l'elevazione, this is uh, track 25, appropriately rising line at the beginning, since we are elevating the host and the line is, the organ melody is moving upward too, there's a wavering tone on the organ, like it might be blown out by a strong wind as if it were a candle, I really enjoyed this tone, this is the first time we're hearing this on this album, it's kind of wavering, it's almost ghostly sounding. The harmony feels solid, the tempo is fairly slow, but the piece comes across with a quiet awe to it. Section nine, this is a very long mass, it's about a half an hour long, Uh, La Bergamasca. I like the high, soft attack tone of the opening of this piece, which comes across with a music box-like mechanical quality. It's different in feeling to everything we've heard up to now. There's a light, almost Renaissance-like dancing melody to it. The variation comes in, the middle voices, With contrapuntal lines all variations in the five minute and 45 second track change textures and the organ can produce a lot of them the textures contrast to such an extent that it's easy to follow each new variation on the theme it's very appealing at three minutes and 20 seconds we even get the ghostly wavering tone again followed by a completely contrasting almost fairground like full sound that's um track 26 and i'm going to recommend that you sample this track as well. It'll give you an an idea of what you're going to hear on this album, because I think uh, Lester goes through all of the sounds that he uses on this album (laughs) in this one track. Anyway, the last track on the album, Capriccio Sopra La Giro Meta. La Giro Meta is a 15th century song. This starts lightly on the appealing high end of the organ. Each voice in the harmony gradually enters at a lower pitch. The opening is kept light and breathy and played piano, which means soft. This proceeds as a set of variations too, each given a heavenly contrasting texture by the organ stops, making the structure easy to follow. And that's the end of the CD. There are actually extra tracks apparently on the Psalm website, which I did not check out. Anyway, the album itself is very comforting in a way only Baroque-era music uh, for church organ can achieve. It's kind of a unique sort of calm. The solid harmonies of the works anchor the soul and the sound of the instrument has an antique quality to it and I enjoyed listening to it. Richard Lester's always appealing way with this particular organ uh, was appealing as well. He really keeps us guessing which um, texture he's going to use for the next section of music and that uh, kept me interested. Uh, Lester projects this music in a contemplative way like he's channeling the masses of the time. It's a pretty somber album of contemplative music that serves its function perfectly. And Lester himself, in the booklet notes, he's not, I wouldn't call him academic, but he does seem to, he's hes trying to kind of communicate academic ideas to, say, a lay audience. So it's got that sort of tone to it. But this really isn't an academic album. It can easily be enjoyed if you're looking for something a little uh, contemplative to listen to in the background. And it's good to just actually focus on as well. I enjoyed it anyway. It's a fantastic organ sound. Lester is an inventive player, at least with the stops. And uh, I would uh, recommend this to people who would be interested in such a thing.
0: Yeah, my description has a lot of the same adjectives that you uh, just mentioned. Yeah. Certainly the male voices have a small supportive kind of chanting role here. And the organ is overall on the dark side and kind of brooding, but it does have a wide variety of tones throughout the program. The music itself is contemplative, serious, sometimes to the point of being somber. That's what I had written. Mm. But that's not a bad thing for a mass or certain religious music. And think of the year 1635. It's interesting to think that this is almost 400-year-old music that influenced Bach. And what I always enjoy most about listening to music of this period is the harmonic direction and where the chords go and the moving lines and how they resolve. It does surprise me in a way that I don't get surprised by in the later Mm -hmm. uh, Baroque era. So I always enjoy that. And yeah, I found it kind of calming and uh, an interesting listen.
1: I want to say something to also to people who listen to classical music. We think about Bach as the giant of the Baroque era. And, um, oh, he's so much better than, you know, like people like Frescobaldi, for example. But you got to remember, this has to do with Newton's um, quote about standing on the shoulders of giants. Bach himself was a great giant, but um, he was highly influenced by all of the music oh, sure. of his time. He was a real polymath, just um, walking miles to hear like de Hood play the organ. Uh, he was very familiar with Vivaldi's concertos at the time and Frescobaldi's music as well. So you want to keep that in mind. Um, Bach became who he was because of the people who came before him, despite the fact that he surpassed them all. But if you were born 100 years earlier, who knows? He might have yeah. been one of them. We don't really know. Keep that in mind, though, because the music of the past really does um, influence the music of the present. Always. Yeah. Anyway, this next album, Giuseppe Verdi. Oh, a composer close to my heart. Drama. Opera. <laughs> um, what was that? um? Okay. <laughs> anyway. I'm not gonna say anything about this. Okay. Verdi choruses. This is um performed by the Coro e Orchestra del Teatro a la Scala, where many of Verdi's operas were premiered. Conducted by Ricardo Chayi, one of the great opera conductors of our time. And this is on the Decca label. So of course you're thinking this is gonna be the best um recording of these works of the twenty-first century so far. Yeah, maybe they are, because I don't know of any others that have been recorded in the 21st century. But um, I was ah, I was rather <laughs> disappointed by this album. And I'll explain why as we go through. Anyway, one thing about Verdi is he was very concerned with character in his operas and wanted every aria and every chorus to match its character and situation perfectly. Um, these choruses demonstrate that well. But the problem is, they're taken out of their context in the opera and here Mm -hmm. they kind of sound rather samey let's say (laughs) okay there are character differences but uh having them one after the other i don't know that this works well although if you really love them you're going to want to be able to isolate them like this anyway anyway in the uh, booklet Paolo Galarati wrote the evocative booklet notes for the cd i'm going to refer to them for my summaries in the context of these choruses and i think that's the best part of this recording where it's some. Summaries, although the uh, English um, translator leaves a little bit to be desired, and I'll um, explain why in a minute. Okay, the first track is from the opera Nabucco. Now, Nabucco is King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, <laughs> you, you would never guess that, right? But no. uh, Nabucco sounds a lot better, I think, than Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Anyway, this is from Act 1. Ghi aredi festivi giù in infranti which means um, throw down and destroy all festive decorations. This is kind of a (laughs) depressed sort of um, chorus. In this part of the opera, Nabucco, here the Levites are sitting in Solomon's temple and invite the virgins to prayer with a solemn religious chorale. The women then pray sweetly above flowing harp notes. Anyway, this album has clear sound from the bass all the way up into the high range so you can hear everything that's happening the brass sounds very clear too. everything does the recording however is very top-heavy the bass doesn't really explode out of the speakers in loud sections and I feel like that um, kind of holds back some of the power that these choruses can have the recording doesn't sound as luxurious and rich as it can there's a lot of fantastic brass in this that would really um, appeal to us it's a clear recording it's recorded for detail and the, uh, the chorus and the orchestra and especially the chorus are placed pretty far away i think from the microphones i understand why um the voices um you don't want to um overpower the orchestra during the fortissimi and there are many on this album uh, the characterization from Cheyenne la scala is um first rate in this particular piece um the transition from the explosive opening to the priest chorus to the virgin's prayers are well wrought that's not going to be the case throughout, though. This album starts well, although I'm already kind of not so happy about the way the recorded sound is coming across. It sounds a bit distant to me, and the bass doesn't really register as strongly as I'd like. Anyway, the second track, oh, this is great. Nabucco, Act 3, Va Pensiero, Sul Ali Dorate. This is uh, an aria that every Italian knows, mostly because a lot of Italians want this to be Italy's national anthem, and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I think if this were Italy's national anthem, they would win every sporting event they ever played. <laughs> so, and maybe would have um, done better in uh, World, War, World Wars I and Two. <laughs> anyway, this is the course of the Hebrew slaves, and it's very inspiring. It sort of um, gives the Italian mind the idea of the Risorgimento, which is the unification of Italy. That revolutionary time when Italy finally became a um, united nation after just you know, millennia of just being separate states. And this was kind of something that was in the air at the time and uh, captures the feeling of that um, revolutionary fervor perfectly. It's a song that evokes homesickness and flying. And Shai and the La Scala Orchestra and Chorus uh, were really born to perform this work. I like the brass sound before the choir begins. It's done with great gentleness and perfect shaping of the lines. So the melody indeed seems to float. Like the thoughts sung... About on the air of the orchestra's rhythm. This is about as characterful as you can get with this very famous piece. It's like hearing the Vienna Philharmonic do a waltz. It's in this uh, orchestra and chorus's DNA. <laughs> Alright, so track two. If you want really the best possible um, sound and performance on this album. Because it's not all like this. Let's go on. Track three, I Lombardi a la prima crociata. Uh, crociata is uh, the Crusades. Okay, so this is the Lombards at the First Crusade. Uh, there's an opera about this. <laughs> Act 3, Jerusalem. This is a heartfelt song that rises from the procession of crusaders, women, and pilgrims crossing the valley of Josaphat, thinking about Christ's crucifixion and hoping that fate will allow them to die in these holy places. Yeah, these people were very different than we are. They wanted to die <laughs> in Jerusalem. We just want to go there and kind of <laughs> see where it all happened. You know. Anyway, Powerful brass opening in this, but it's a bit distant, so it doesn't really make as huge an impact as it can, but it does impact. There's light singing by the women's chorus in the following verse. They're placed a bit distantly so that the light accompaniment isn't overwhelmed. I keep going back to the uh, balance. It's commendable, but during fortissimo from the choir, the more forwardly placed orchestra isn't overwhelmed, but it sounds kind of odd. I'd like more presence on the voices excellently focused as they are though. You can really hear all the individual notes and the harmony in the recording. So it is clear that way. Um, I should mention Shai has a reputation for fast tempos. I have his Brahms and Beethoven um, symphonies um, albums and he conducts them all pretty fast. Um, But in this case, um, that's not happening. Uh, The lines are all in this case perfectly paced so that the words and drama come across. But um, I think sometimes anyway, let's let's move on. I'll get to that when I get to that. Same opera Act 4 O Signore del Tetonatio, O Lord from our native hearths. This embodies a similar homesickness to va pensiero so it's kind of a similar sort of um, sentiment. The chattering flutes vaguely recall a distant Arcadia, which I guess would be a perfect sort of place. Beautifully paced, but there hasn't been much variety so far in this album. Uh, It's enjoyable, nevertheless, for those familiar with the operas. But as a program in itself, I'm hoping we'll get some contrast to break up the pattern of longing choruses. This work is excellently paced and sung. Next we get to the uh, opera Ernani, and this is the prelude, so there's no voices here. This points uh, towards the intimacy of individual tragedy, and we hear the lead character's leitmotif in this. This is an instrumental break from the uh, voices. It's stirring, and we can focus on the orchestra, which sounds absolutely plush. The bass is a bit richer here, but still doesn't impact. It's a good balanced sound that doesn't overpower, and Shai does the Verdian rhythmic lilt especially well. Ernani, Act 3, Si Ridesti il Leon di Castiglia. The Lion of Castile Rises Again. And here, the uh, march rhythm offers a universal cry of rebellion against the oppressor, an incitement to battle, release from slavery, victory or death, and the long for triumph of freedom. Um, this chorus became a symbol of patriotic revenge in Risorgimento, Italy. One of the reasons like, Verdi was so popular in Italy, because he was sort mm-hmm. of um, a revolutionary figure. This is a stirring opening with repeated chords providing rhythmic motion. The chorus is a bit bolder than the preceding, and it's very brief. Track seven, Don Carlo, an opera that I really love. It's really powerful. Act three, Spuntato, Ecco il di Desultanza. All right, <laughs> what this title means is, this is my inter- my uh, translation is, the day of joy has suddenly appeared. Spuntare means like when something just pops up or appears or you know by surprise or something like that. You can say like um there's a famous um lyric in Rossini's uh, opera Barbiere di Siviglia, spunta la bella aurora, so the um, s- the sun spunta in the sky, it just suddenly appears in the sky in the morning. The booklet notes um translated as this happy day is filled with joy, which eh, it's kind of <laughs> close, but The happy day is filled with joy. I think it's a bit redundant because, of course, a happy day would be filled with joy. Hmm. Anyway, it's an odd translation. There are going to be a few more of these. Anyway, this comes from the scene in the opera of the coronation of Philip II in front of the Cathedral of Valladolid where an auto da fe ritual is taking place for the heretics identified during the Inquisition. Sentenced to be burned at the stake. Verdi's Hmm. music evokes the oppressive nature of Philip, his court, and policies, while the king himself struggles under the oppressive weight of power. The people sing the praises of the greatest among kings to fanfares and bells before the atmosphere changes to a leaden funeral march sung by a chorus of monks. That part is very cool, by the way. Accompanying those convicted by the Inquisition to their deaths, Verdi presents the repugnant image of this abject, repressive barbarity using gloomy orchestral timbres with an ominous throbbing from the uh, double basses, supported by bassoons, trombones, bass tuba, which has a great sound in this, and timpani and rolls of bass drum that seem to come from the bowels of the earth. Yeah, if the recording was a little more forward, but um, it does sound pretty cool, though. The opening is filled with cymbal splashes and fanfares from the brass. It's joyous and contrasts well with the darker trudge of the march, sung by bass voices with some excellent low brass playing foreboding tones shai and the choir put across some tangible darkness here when the voice of the people come back in at the four minute uh, mark there's a distant brass fanfare which the closer orchestra echoes much of the material here is kept in the distance i guess in this case indicating some activity occurring far away Uh, there's a bold ending with a bass drum rumble under the brass that's felt but not clearly heard The next three tracks come from the opera Macbeth, based on, of course, the Shakespeare play. Act one, Ke faceste dite su, is sung by the witches at the beginning of uh, Macbeth. Both choruses from Macbeth are sung by the witches here. These have fragmented, mocking, unpredictable qualities that depict the characters of the bearded women who Verdi stated must be vulgar, yet bizarre and original. So this starts with rushing rhythms indicating unease. Um, We've heard this sort of thing in... Like earlier Romantic German opera, and uh, the bass drum registers well here, but it's not powerfully felt. When I say German opera, I'm thinking of Weber's Der Freischutz when he's in the uh, the Wolf's Glen with um the the devil there. He he uses similar figures. This has all women's voices sung together in harmony. Verdi's choruses tend to fall in certain recognizable patterns, and that happens in the second half of this um, particular chorus. It's dramatically effective in the opera, though, and it's well done here. Track nine, Salon Tanarno. Um, we get more of the eerie strings sounds from the uh, previous era. Rushing string figures accompany the chorus, and at the end, the quick dotted eighth rhythm is used in the vocal line, giving the forward thrust. Okay, we go ahead to Macbeth Act 4, Patria Oppressa, which means um, my, um, my oppressed country. This is set in a deserted location, and the Scottish refugees um, lament the fate of their homeland, which the tyrant has reduced to a mass grave, and their complaints rise up to the heavens, uh, which amplify them in a cosmic cry of grief. A series of orchestral figures and vocal exclamations above a texture of mournful calls is paired with the concept of the funeral bell, evoked metaphorically in dismal peals throughout the orchestra. Can can I say something about this? This whole idea of my oppressed country, of other people taking it over—this was like normal life for most of history. <laughs> and, you know, we 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 tend to take it for granted that uh, you know we're all safe and secure now, but uh, not necessarily the case. We should really listen to these operas and kind of you know remember what these people were experiencing. You know, the um, not just the characters, but the people in the audience as well, in some cases. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we've been hearing a lot of brass on this recording. Here it's ominous, and the bass drum provides a sinister feel. Uh, String pizzi have good presence, as do the weeping string figures that follow at a minute and 30 seconds. The chorus enters in a hushed tone, singing oppressed land of ours. Uh, The words are patria oppressa. Um, The hush of the chorus and orchestra is again distant, well-caught, and especially well-evoked. The entire chorus maintains that hush, with a few well-timed, dramatic forte moments. Track 11, and here's where the whole album, for me, starts to go wrong. I mean, it's already just okay, but... We get Il Trovatore, Act 2, Verdi le Fosca notturne Spoglia. This is more famously known as the Anvil Chorus, and it's something we've all heard if we've watched um, Bugs Bunny cartoons when we were kids, because <laughs> it was, um, it was um, used on that. The, the title means, Look, Night's Dark Cloak is Removed. And again, this has a bizarre English translation in the uh, track listing. It's probably the most famous chorus on this album, maybe with the exception of Va Pensiero, but uh, for Italians. But for the rest of the world, it's probably this one. Um, the opening comes across with presence. The anvil chorus is first heard in the first minute, and it's done with power and a heavy rhythm. But I have to say, sparks don't really fly here. The strings are well caught. I feel like the orchestra overpowers the chorus, unbelievably, because the chorus is singing really loudly. Those hammers will be heard no matter how loudly the chorus sings. So I don't think this should have been uh, thought about too much. The work might come across more effectively if the tempo were a bit faster. It sounds like too much care is being taken with the tempo here. Or perhaps the orchestra and the chorus have sung this so many times, probably, that they're just not interested anymore. I'm not really getting any energy from this. Okay, it sounds good, though. The clarity is all um, fantastic. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel it's, like it's a very inspired performance. Anyway, track 12, La Forza del Destino, Act 3, Nella Guerra e la Folia. Oh, truer words have never spoken. Um, war is folly. Anyway, this is a tarantella. And the music is uh, instilled with a distinctive hint of local color and its rowdy, witty, stylized, working-class cheer. In this scene at daybreak in a military encampment near Veletri, the vivandiere, and vivandieri are people who follow an army and sell provisions to the soldiers. Okay, that, that happens anymore, but in the 19th century and before it did. In English, the English word for a vivandiere would be a, a sutler, S U T L E R. I wonder if I pronounced that right. Here, um, the vivandieri take the new recruits by the arm and lead them in a bouncy, spirited dance praising the war and the other similar opportunities for carefreeness that it offers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't really think of war like this anymore, but yeah. at the time, you you weren't limited by social rules. I mean, we don't really live under too many social rules these days, but um, you know, war, despite mm. the bloodshed, it was a time for, um, I guess, doing what you wanted. It was a release. Anyway, Shai captures the happiness of this chorus well in his pacing, Uh, The tempo might be a bit slow, but it's helpful in keeping the choral voices together. It's pretty short. Okay, the most majestic uh, chorus on the entire album is coming up from the opera Aida. Act 2, Gloria al Egito al Iside. Iside is Isis. If you know this opera, Act 2 is entirely almost sung by the chorus. It's like a big sort of um, victory hymn. It's monumental and matches the monumental staging Of this opera. This is really grand opera at its grandest. Anyway, it starts with distant brass fanfares. The strings pick up on it and are recorded up front. This of course comes on fortissimo when the chorus enters and harmonic detail in the voices are well caught despite the power of the volume. The clarity is especially welcome when the quieter women's voices come in at about the two-minute mark. Contrast here is given between voice registers, the men's voices that follow singing a lower range until the tenors come in. Track 14 continues after that. It's an instrumental, the triumphal march and ballet. It's a well-known melody led by the brass. I wish the brass were more up front here. I like the playing. But the distance of the recording takes away from the impact. The interpretation is standard. Orchestral detail and the march rhythm taking precedence in the interpretation. Uh, Rushing lines come next. Um, There's actually a long vocal-less break. In this uh, track, at uh, it's 6 minutes and 10 seconds long. Shai seems to have structured the various tempi to have maximum contrast to the section preceding the current tempo, so each section changes tempo in a pretty dramatic way. Balances are really weird on this particular track, though everything is commendably audible. At the 3 minute and 20 second mark, I like the snarling trombone, or it could be a euphonium, I'm pretty sure it's a trombone though. At 3 minutes and 53 seconds, the rhythm seems to be too measured, too metronomic. I'd like to hear more of a rushing sound here. At this speed, though, the foreign elements, like the distant perfumed cymbals, draw the ear. Track 15, Aida Act 2, Vieni o Guerriero Vindice. The chorus is back, sounds a bit distant, with some fortissimo accents from the orchestra. At the 35 second mark, they just sound too far away. The orchestra actually is upstaging them at this point. And the last track on the album from Simon Boccanegra. This is the prologue called Viva Simon. This contrasts with Aida, according to the notes. The expression of the Genoese people who burst chaotically onto the stage celebrating Simon Boccanegra's election as doge is impulsive, spontaneous, and highly effective in its portrayal of the jubilation of a political side, as opposed to Aida's uh, liturgical solemnity and the order of official ceremony. It starts with a good pace to it, the chorus registers well on top of the orchestra, they mostly sing fortissimo, and there are some cool bell effects in this one. It's very brief and has an odd ending. Well, the ending isn't odd, but it's an odd ending to the album due to its brevity. It really doesn't feel like it's finished. So anyway, to be honest, I thought I was going to enjoy this album a lot more than I did. It starts well, especially with the rousing rendition of Va Pensiero, with its rhythm like a wing caught by the air, well-characterized. But I was a little disappointed by the distance of the ensemble, and especially the voices from the microphones, and the lightness at the bass end. The recording is very soft, and I had to boost the volume considerably just to have the sound impact, and it still didn't impact much. I guess I could have turned it up more, but I didn't want to blow the neighbors away. The bass registers, but doesn't impact. I'm sure this was an artistic decision by the producers and engineers, but I would have liked a foolish sounding recording. Shai takes tempos on the slower side as the album goes on. There's always clarity throughout the recording, miraculous considering the thickness of the orchestra and choral textures, but the famous anvil chorus from El Trovatore has been better served elsewhere. Uh, it sounds too measured here, not spontaneous. A few of these works actually sound like the orchestra and the conductor are going through the motions of music that they know well and have performed many times. Now... As far as uh, if you're interested in these works, I would look back into the 20th century and go for some of the recordings from the 1980s and 1990s of these. I thought this was just okay, really. I didn't give this a real critical listen. I
0: was just sort of going along with the music and I was listening on my smaller system. So I didn't really notice the thinness to the recording. I thought the performances were mostly exuberant. Uh, I got pulled in. And just in the nature of the music, it's hard to not. <laughs> really. Yeah, it is very big. Mm. I guess if you're uh, you know singing it, you really get inspired to uh, sing it out. But in the program, there's also those gentle little lilting contrasts right. that are nice too. And give those a little, were good.
1: I really liked the characterization of those, yeah.
0: And then have some good of those Italian explosions of yeah. <laughs> brass and uh, percussion. Uh, it's really hard for me to listen to opera. Kind of isolated, you yeah. I really want to see the story too.
1: But no, that Verdi is all about drama. He's not as much about the musical content as say Wagner mm. is, for example. But um, he's 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 really focusing more on the dra- dramatic impact of yeah. his um, story.
0: But uh, I I know most of the music here, but I'm not a big. Isolated opera listener, so it's hard for me to be um, more critical of the mm. performances in isolation. But there's there's some highlights in here as well and good points. And but maybe as you say, the nature of this program makes it a little bit <laughs> <and> <laughs> sort of modular as you go through it like that. Yeah. So
1: I think as an Italian American listener, I wanted blood from these <laughs> okay. courses, and I didn't really get it on this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the opera recordings, of the full opera recordings, these really get, puts that across really well. Yeah. yeah. All right. My third and final classical album is uh, a contemporary composer that I really like, Erkis Ventur. Canticum canticorum caritatis, which is the name of one of the um, choral works on this album. This is an album of choral works by this Estonian composer. Now, <laughs> when you think Estonia, you might think Arvo Pärt. And you'd be correct. Uh, they're both mm-hmm. Estonian, but Tour sounds absolutely nothing like <laughs> Arvo Parrot. He's a lot more adventurous, as far as um, so, although Parrot is adventurous in his own way, but it's it's mm-hmm. very a very kind of quiet, almost holy sounding music from Parrot. Tours is more. He's he's inspired a lot by rock music, but that's not the case on this album, um, which I'll kind of talk about more. This is um performed by the Collegium Musicale Chamber Choir, conducted by Hendrik Verre, who is Estonian, and studied trumpet and French horn, hmm. as well as, I guess, conducting. This is on the Alpha label. Okay, so Erkis Ventur, who we've heard uh, some of his orchestral music before, I find him to be a very exciting composer in general. He's around our age, in, in meaning he's middle-aged. He's in his <laughs> 50s, possibly 60s. I'm not really sure. Anyway, he claimed his, his music is... Teleological, and this is like a really mm. good word for a good classical piece. Teleological means that something has an end. And this comes from Aristotle. For example, the end of an acorn is a tree. The acorn is made to become a tree. Mm. So an orchestra work has something that it inevitably has to become at the end or reach. So, it, right from the beginning, you should be sort of aware, in a sense, where the work is headed is what that means. The end is inevitable due to the music's DNA interacting with its environment, which is uh, represented by the composer's imagination. That would be the uh, environment. Hmm. Tour's music is often intensely expressive. I know how that translates into his orchestral music, but I was curious about what his choral music would sound like, so I programmed it here. Tour also requires that the words are always audible in his music, so... Um, He would have been a good church composer back in the Renaissance era because they were Hmm. demanding that after all the polyphony that was happening. Even when there are richly decorated melismatic voices, he thinks the uh, words have to be understandable. And he structures the work according to the words. Now, all the words are indeed um, understandable on this album, but they're all in Latin. So (laughs) (laughs) if you don't know Latin, although they're not all in Latin. Actually, this first piece is uh, Trigolson Trishagion, which means three languages, three times holy. And this was written in 2008. And this is um, related to the Orthodox Christian tradition. And it's sung in, there's a verse, and it's sung in Estonian, and then it's sung in Russian, and then finally in Greek. Now, Hmm. this has to do with the Orthodox Christian tradition, which is originally Greek, and this is the Russian Orthodox Christianity with the icons. And Estonian, too, which would be um, Tours' nationality. Tour uses various style references with the various languages. And you got to remember the work is structured according to the words. This will really become obvious if you listen to the album. There are three prayers in the text said in three different languages. So we hear the same prayer three times in a different language. It starts in Estonian. The writing is fairly traditional with harmonized vocal lines. The harmony is pretty comfortable to the ear being fairly traditional. The occasional dissonance just adds spice to the texture and makes me want to go to an Orthodox Christian mass if they're (laughs) going to play music like this. All voices sing the individual syllables at the same time so the text is easy to follow. I like the way tour changes the vocals from women to men and then to mixed choir as the languages change. Uh, When the women are singing, we hear Estonian, the men sing the Russian, and the mixed choir sings Greek. Uh, the Russian line has a particularly appealing phrase ending, dipping deep into the bass. At 3 minutes and 33 seconds, the glory beat of the father verse begins, and this pattern changes with the third verse, which is mixed choir throughout in all the languages. So we get a bit of variety in the voices as well. Tracks 2 through 6 are a mass, the Misa Brevis from 2013. Brief mass, so it doesn't set the entire ordinary of the mass. Although this does, but they're just really short movements. The first movement, Kyrie, Lord have mercy. The characteristic opening theme suggests a classical cross motif, but there's also a sequence of opposite and gradually decreasing melodic intervals that refer to a spiral movement towards a center or an absolute. The polyphony of the Kyrie becomes chordal at Kyrie, then individual voices at Kyrie again. Uh, The polyphonic voices in Kyrie convey omnipresence and the chords at Kyrie mark the absolute that embodied itself as a specific entity. Obviously, that didn't come off the top of my head. That's from the booklet (laughs) notes, okay? I'm not that smart. Anyway, I would not have picked all this out by myself. Anyway, the opening is sung by a single voice or multiple male voices on the uh, same note as a chant, only the harmony isn't in a church mode, or at least not in a Roman church mode. It's pretty ear-grabbing Uh, Harmony is gradually piled onto the line with women's voices coming in only after the male voices, so the harmony actually does sound piled on, bottom to top. There are some pungent harmonies in this, otherworldly, but not offensive to the ear. The harmony is easily listenable, but very contemporary. At the 2 minutes and 50 second mark, vocal glissandos begin, sliding down via microtones. It sounds great in this context. The second uh, movement, Gloria... Opens with a variant of the opening motif of Kyrie, which now has a jubilant color. Because Gloria is glory to God in the highest. It's praise of God. The melodic intervals become larger now as they go on, giving an impression of expansion. And at the word Deo, the voices become chordal again. We hear women's voices at the beginning singing a chant-like melody, but not in a Roman church mode, of course. Uh, vocals slowly swirl in this setting with male voices coming in to color in the bottom harmonies after the opening. The text is gotten through slowly and the music and singing is compelling throughout. All of these mass sections have pretty odd endings which leave one contemplating what you just heard afterwards. Third movement Credo, I Believe in One God. This is an abbreviated text and the section represents the first phase of the evolving process. It's got a very ear-grabbing harmony at the beginning. Each section of the text gets a unique orchestration of verses and harmony. The recording, once again, is crystal clear, and all voices can be heard. That has a lot to do with tour setting, of course. Um, There's a lot of space and transparency between the voices, and there's a bit of untraditional melisma on certain vowels, more a spiraling sound than a melodic sort of flowering. This ends on an odd chord as well fourth section, which is track 5, Sanctus et Benedictus. The accumulated chords of the cradle crystallize here as if out of time. We hear solemn women's voices, and this setting, like many late 20th, early 21st century choral works relies a lot on rich overtones produced by clashing harmonies for its otherworldly effect. You can hear that clearly in this section, and the text tends to stop and start in this setting, each line being sung and followed by a pause. The fifth movement, Agnus Dei, Lamb of God. The chords begin to dissolve again in single voices, eventually reaching equilibrium in the all-synthesizing final harmony at the words Dona Nobis Pacem, according to the booklet notes. Uh, This continues in much the same vein as the previous section, with pauses between each sung set of words. There's a more traditional melisma in this section, though it's not foregrounded. Track 7, Omnia Mutantur, from the year 2020, This is multifaceted and rich, intertwining the famous sentiments of Ovid and Virgil about the transitory nature of everything. So this is not a religious work, though it is a um, sort of um, meta, sort of um, philosophical text. Uh, The work is rich in contrast, too. The harmony is a lot smoother and easier on the ear in this work, despite the fact that it was written only two years ago, or three years ago now. The work sounds pretty traditional, there's an interesting scattered hocketing of voices at around the 2 minute and 10 second mark on the words "nulla Salos Bello, which means there is no safety in war. <laughs> we should probably keep this in mind <laughs> these days. Uh, this is nice because hocketing means uh, one person on, say, the left will sing one word and then the next word will be sung by someone on the right and then the left and the right. So you can hear this ping-ponging between your two speakers. The various voices gradually come together into a forte statement of the line with the whole chorus in harmony. At 3 minutes and 35 seconds, the final line, Amor vincit omnia, please print that out, put it on your front door. It means love conquers all. Is heard and it's sung with rising lines that make one's spirits rise with them. I like the concept here. This is a choral work that choirs should check out and it's beautifully performed here. Track eight, Canticum Canticorum Caritatis. This means a song of songs of charity. And this was written in 2020. It uses, and I really loved this, by the way, it uses St. Paul's famous passage from his first letter to the Corinthians in which he describes the nature of love. And if you've ever been to a a wedding in the West, you've, you've definitely heard this text, or at least part of it. The suggestive form of the work derives directly from the structure of the text. It's set in phrases, uh, with all voices singing the syllables together in harmony. The rhythm is that of the spoken word, though there's a melody to the tones. This is the cleanest sense we get of tours letting the words dictate the way the music will sound. The words are, of course, stirring, and they're not poetic. They're they're almost like spoken or written, they're prosaic, Mm. but they're really beautiful as those of us who have read them know, and the music is stirring as well in parts. There are certain phrases that stand out for me, such as the entire, if I give away everything I own verse. I especially like the tapering off and quietening of the ending of many verses, such as, non agit perperam non inflatur, which means, it is not pompous, it is not inflated, it referring to love, which is sung in a very non-pompous, non-inflated way. This is after the 4 minute and 30 second mark, if you want to sample that. Melisma is heard more as the work goes on. The words consistently evoke the feeling of the text. It's a great setting of these words, appropriately modest, not majestic. For me, this is the standout track on the album. It's a heartfelt setting of these eternally beautiful words. So I think I hold the words really close to my heart, so I really like the music as well. Now I sample that track eight. The final track on the album, I'm not going to be able to say this, are Rendaya Otulaul, which is a Wanderer's Evening song in Estonian. This was written in 2001 and based on poems by Ernst Enno. In this case, this is a very different work from everything we've heard on this album. Tour hadn't arrived at the style we heard in the mass yet, which he calls a um, vectorial style. (laughs) I don't really know what that means. But we can hear references in this work to Ar- Arvo Pärt's Tintinabuli style. Tintinabuli means like bell-like, where the harmonies sort of mm. pile on each other and they kind of sound like little bells. Especially at the beginning, where we hear a long-held bourdon, which is a drone, a low-pitched stop on an organ, and short replicas that sound in the background. So we, we hear like echoes of it in the background. The vocals are also used as quasi-instrumental accompaniment, a technique the composer rarely uses. Okay, so there are droning basses throughout the work, pinning down the melodic lines. This work, he mentioned to Arvo but to me, this work reminded me more of John Tavener, the British composer, who is also um, Eastern Orthodox Christian and wrote a lot of works. Um, it, it reminds me of Arvo as well, though. The rather long text is practically chanted throughout with droning lines producing overtones accompanying. The drones stop in the fifth minute for the text a field of stars with silver glow, and the women's voices, divided into two lines, start singing the text in a methodical way, producing some fine overtone bloom at the end of phrases via the clashing harmony. I should mention, this is sung in Estonian, not English. Um, So I'm going by the text here, um, the translation. The men's voices eventually uh, come in with a rhythmic line singing, like dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, kind of like a... Percussive melodic kind of sound. The men's voices take over for a bit of lower harmony in the eleventh minute. The women return in the twelfth minute as the lower male voices continue their uh dumb dum dumb rhythmic pattern. This accompaniment speeds up and becomes more syllabically complex toward the end of the work. The work ends on an ethereal chord, the syllable dum heard heading down the scale. Like dum 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 dum. It kind of sounds like a plucked bass, I guess, imitation. The text for this work is very long, and the work itself goes on for 17 minutes of uninterrupted choral singing. It rather stands out as different on the album. The style isn't the same as the rest of the works, but it's a good listen, and welcome all the same. Anyway, this is an album of beautiful choral singing, and don't let its contemporary nature scare you away. I think fans of choral music will all enjoy this. It's got a reverent tone for most of the album and is genuinely moving at times, a quality I don't hear much in contemporary music, so it's very rare in a sense. Uh, this may be the gentlest album of music I've heard from Erkis Ventur so far. It's not a quality I associate with him. His symphonies often use rock rhythms and can get pretty wild, though he's been calming down in recent years. His effects are appealing, and the Collegium Musicale Chamber Choir sing brilliantly and with great clarity on this album. It's also beautifully recorded with great clarity. Recommended and listen with the texts if you can. The words add to your enjoyment. I listened to this straight through and I recommend it to those interested in choral music especially.
0: Yeah, this was very interesting. It's a meditative listen. The harmonies become really dense, Mm. but because the flow of the music is determined by the lyrical content, it's a very relaxed kind of atmosphere. Mm. And so... you're not struggling to keep up on a horizontal movement. Right. That's just kind of flowing. And so I found that I could focus more on the vertical and hear all of these harmonies. Additionally, right. it was easier to grasp the harmonies in this vocal music compared to his instrumental works that we've listened to. I mean, you got right. all these different timbres stacked on each other. Right. Uh, sometimes it gets, you know, a little
1: bit hard to pick out. He he likes the orchestral glissando as well, yeah. where the whole orchestra <laughs> goes, <laughs> you know, it sounds like that. It kind of sounds like a siren. But here
0: with pure sounding, just human voice, I could really enjoy, you know, that harmonic kind of structure going up and down, moving at this easy pace with the texts. And yeah, you get really pulled into it, and I felt maybe a little step closer to understanding his unique musical language. Although right, there's he still is unique, a lot to figure yeah. out, yeah. Um, yeah. But definitely interesting and kind of engrossing, uh, just for the wonderful sound of all these voices too.
1: Yeah. Uh, by the way, I mentioned what his um, orchestral music sounds like for that kind of like orchestral glissando or a lot of those. Listen to his violin concerto. Just pull up a recording of that, and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> And, and uh, make sure the neighbors aren't home when you do that. <laughs>
0: so we're uh, going from this choral and some organ to uh, a little different kind of organ for the jazz. Uh, we're going to be going again to one of our favorite instruments. Ah, the Hammond, the Hammond. organ. I feel better already. Which, interestingly, <laughs> was designed as a church organ as a less expensive replacement for a pipe organ you know which mm. is wind powered and you have the hammond which uses this kind of electric and mechanical tone wheel if you want to see something scary uh, go check <laughs> out on youtube there's some videos of you know of course i was curious and i always wanted to see what it's like inside one of them well uh it's very uh Very uh, mechanically and electronically uh, complex system in there. And of course, because they were initially designed, you know, to be in churches, they weren't meant to be a portable instrument. I think those things weigh like 450 pounds. So uh, They became really popular with jazz musicians and, you know, kind of soul jazz. And later we used to hear organ all the time in 60s music and 70s music. And then unfortunately, I think, you know, when pop music became synth Focused in the 80s and like wow look at all these great new sounds we can make and with these portable things we sort of lost the organ for a while but I think we're on a trend of the organ coming back because there's so much good organ music uh, that's coming out in jazz and kind of more funky jazz soul jazz kind of things as well (laughs) we've had a lot of organ episodes so I thought well why not one more because uh, there were some recordings (laughs) one more they're going to be loads more I'm just sure
1: of it (laughs)
0: And I think I've got a nice little program here for you tonight.
1: Now, I just want to say before we started this podcast, I think I had three jazz organ recordings and now I have like easily around between 20 and 30. <laughs> so it's only in two It'll years. i will do that to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: well, the first recording, uh, this almost slipped off from, uh, you know, the possibilities of entering because normally what I do is I keep a three month list. And then that previous month at the end of the current month will just get archived because I like to stay current. Uh, So this was at the danger of being archived, but I pulled it out and said, let's start with this one for a couple of reasons. One is the organist here is Mr. George Contraforus, and we've featured him. A number of times on the podcast on both on organ and piano and I wanted to check out the other players making up this organ trio and the recording is called our groove your move yeah, great a great title yeah <laughs> which plays off one of the tune titles we will get right. to. Uh, it's on AMP music and records and we've got together with George Contraforest Jacob Rovit and Sami Lena. And so I wanted to check these players out. Uh, Jacob Rovet, I believe, is Danish, and he's a drummer and composer. He's educated at the Royal Conservatory of the Netherlands and at the Sibelius Academy, Finland. And he's active on the Danish jazz scene and a lot of projects there. And Sammy Lena, the guitarist here, he, in addition to playing guitar works as a trustee on several music organizations and teaches guitar. And he also graduated from the jazz department of the Sibelius Academy. And he's also got a degree in music pedagogy from Stadia University of Applied Sciences. And he's getting his doctoral thesis completed too on combining tonality and modality in jazz performance. And so I'm not sure. Oh, wow. That's some thesis. Yeah. <laughs> what the uh, connection is with George Contraforus. But we come to kind of think of him as the godfather of Greek jazz.
1: Because of our uh, Greek friends who pretty much told him yeah. that's who he
0: was. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've heard him in first episode 61. That was Mallet Maestros with the uh, vibraphonist Demetris Angelicus. Right. And then, of course, as part of Yakovos uh, Simonaitis' Trio on uh, Safe Place. And uh, that was Great. episode 64, Menager Trio. And then we said, <laughs> said, let's just go all out and do a whole Greek episode. Right. And we did uh, episode 69, All Greek to Me, which is still getting a lot of downloads uh, to these days. And we heard. We,
1: we got to do another one. Yeah. I haven't even got a title for it. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> well, we heard George Contraforce's own trio recording called Deep South, which was kind of interesting. And then uh, we come to find out also on. There, we did the Spiral Trio, which ended up being one of our favorite recordings of last year. Uh, I still think it's one of the best piano trio recordings I've heard. And it turns out that George Contraforos was one of the teachers of Spiros Menesis, the pianist in the Spiral Trio. And, you know, Yakovos told us that, you know, jazz kind of skipped a generation in Greece, kind of because of the political situation in the government. And luckily... There were people like George Contraforis who were teaching jazz and have taught a kind of new generation, and jazz seems to be booming again with a good scene in Athens there. And then we heard him once more in episode 87, uh, "Fall Frets" with uh, Apostolos Leventopoulos after the spirit. Also a really good recording with nice guitarist there too. So check those out. And well, here. I thought this was also appropriate to start out the program because they're focusing on some good old-time figures of 60s jazz kind of sold, you know, that hard bop sound that used the organ a lot. We're going to get some tunes from organists from that time, starting out with a Freddie Roach tune called Debug. It's oh. D-E-B-U-G. And Freddie Roach it's was words. from hmm. the Bronx, and uh, his first <laughs> Commercial recordings were with the great saxophonist Ike Quebec on Blue Note in 1961. I listen to these two all the time. Heavy Soul, which is a really great one. And also, it might as well be Spring. But this song is from the 1962 release, Down to Earth, uh, featuring Kenny Burrow on guitar. So that's big shoes to fill with guitar and organ. But yeah, they do a nice rendition of it here, taking it a bit slower than the original. It's in six, eight with four measure intro of two alternating chords. And then it's a 12 bar blues. And Lena and Contraforest take the melody of rising riffs together. And the last two bars is just the chords we heard from the intro. And they go around twice. With Rova tracing out the 6 8 feel on the light cymbals. Alina uh, Sol is first, and man is he relaxed here with a great hmm. warm tone. He has some really fluid triplet lines, other cool rhythmic licks, also some fun bent double stop notes in there. He repeats and uh, rips apart a riff in there to really build up tension. Contraforest Falls building up from short licks of pairs of notes in the middle and lower registers. He gets more speedy runs, but peppers in some bluesy repetition, keeping it all with a straight, smooth tone on the organ. Uh, They take it out with two more runs through the blues head and an outro similar to the intro with some final tasty licks from Lena. Track two, another huge organ figure, Don Patterson and uh well Ladon told us a lot about uh, him too if you haven't heard our <laughs> interview with him uh, go back and check that out it's called it's all your fault uh this is Bowl full of yak why yeah, what, okay what is yak
1: i don't Do know, you know? <laughs> no idea but maybe it might be a thing jazz people might know but i guess not i don't know <laughs>
0: so this one uh, comes from the recording satisfaction 1966 anyway this one's also a little bit slower than the original i guess they were chilled out on the recording day in the studio This one's a minor and bluesy tune with a sparse melody handled by both organ and guitar over Contraforce's organ bass. It has some cool twists of chords like in the 4th and 12th measure. The structure is an ABA with a 16 measure A section and an 8 measure B that turns major before it twists back to the minor. Contraforest takes over on the B section while Lena switches to chords. Another great, relaxed, bluesy solo from Lena here. I like how he uses a lot of repetition in his lines to build up tension. Some really speedy double-time licks in this one as well. Enrovit is subtle on the drums but adds tasty fills and snare textures underneath. Contraforest has some zippy lines in his solo on this one with punchy left-hand chords. Lots of interesting rhythmic figures in there as well. Once more through the melody with some final phrase repeats to end it track three not an organ player but someone who had a lot of funky tunes himself the great saxophonist hank mobley this i dig of you mm-hmm. <laughs> this is from a 1960 soul station recording that had uh, art blakey wynton kelly and uh, paul chambers on it uh, this one has a speedy groove a bit faster than the original on this one there's an eight measure intro with rising and then falling organ chords Provid has a really cool busy Latin clicky beat going, and Lina handles the melody on his own here. It's a 32 measure tune ABAB form. The original has different feels on the sections, but they emphasize that here even more, keeping the A with a Latin feel and then breaking into swing over walking organ bass for the B section. They keep it swinging for the solos, and Counterforce is first on this one over tight, bouncy chords from Lena. It's a playful one working a descending four note idea into all kinds of lines. And then Lena shows off his agility with fluid speedy lines, makes good use of repeated single notes. Rovid has been keeping things grooving and he gets his own solo on this one, focusing on some nice tom work before getting to those Latin-y cymbals to take another melody run with the others and a fun final chord with some final bluesy guitar licks. We're gonna get one of Rovid's original tunes for track four, Unveil My Path. It's a very slow ballad, Rovid keeping a super soft, brushed feel and Lena takes the pretty melody and Contraforest takes us to church on this one with some tremolo-y soft chords. It's a 16 measure melody and the chords are interesting, keeping you harmonically surprised right to the end. Contraforest solos first, switching to a very straight sounding tone and keeping it smooth and subtle. To pick it up a little bit for Lena's solo, giving it a double time feel and Lena finds nice melodic ideas in his solo here. They bring it back to the original feel for another run through the melody. Contra adding organ swells below this time, and it ends with a little tag of the first three melody measures that just sort of evaporates.
1: Yeah, I really like that, the, the glow that the organ's able to yeah. get on this track, you know? It's, yeah, nice. it's It's another cool sound that the Hammond can make.
0: Track five, The Inchworm. This is a Frank Losser tune, uh, originally performed by Danny Kay in the <laughs> 1952 <laughs> film uh, Hans Christian
1: Andersen. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I'll have to watch that again. I haven't seen that since I was really a kid, really.
0: Uh, this one's a swinging waltz. There's an eight-measure intro, and then Contraforce takes on the fun interval jump melody. That's that inchworm kind of uh, skipping over <laughs> idea. It's Mm. a 16 measure melody and they follow it up with eight measures of rhythmic chords, and then they do both things again. Lena's up first for a solo and he makes good use of the interval idea, getting a solo going, some speedy triplet lines, and then really cool accented phrases. Contraforce starts out soft and low in his solo, building up out of some interval ideas from the melody too. Then a dizzying series of adventurous rising and falling lines that make some harmonic tension. He holds out a long high note and gets the, I don't know if he's using a Leslie or not, but that kind of tremolo effect spinning there a bit before they hit the rhythmic chords again and into the melody for a couple of rounds and final rhythmic jam to a fading finish.
1: I want to go back to like Danny K for a minute cuz you both you've seen you've seen this movie right Yeah maybe when I was a kid yeah Yeah because they were on TV you know now yeah. like young people they don't watch TV anymore so we, we just had to watch what was on TV back in the right. day right. and oddly we wound up with this sort of Latent knowledge of like movie history, yeah, <laughs> just because just of just because that. of the TV, yeah, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. people don't really have that anymore anyway.
0: And also musical knowledge, because a lot of the musical knowledge too, yeah, tunes,
1: yeah, early jazz. I remember the Abbott and Costello movies had like you know people like Ella Fitzgerald, them. yeah, and, um, yeah. You know, she sang a tisket a tasket. Variety,
0: whatnot. right? I mean, yeah, we
1: had variety then. Yeah,
0: uh, all right, we're gonna end up then with the track that the album title is taken from, but this is my groove, your move. Another Hank Mobley tune, and this one comes from Roll Call, 1960, with uh, Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Wynton Kelly piano, Paul Jammer's bass, and Art Blakey on drums. And they give this a pretty similar groove and tempo to the original, to 12-bar minor blues with fun chords that goes around twice and then finishes with an 8-bar kind of bridge section into a solo break, a nice stop time and then change up of feel from the eighth measure. A uh, Contraforce takes the melody here and continues on into a solo. Rovit has that blakey backbeat feel going nicely, a uh, really good organ solo of snaking lines, little trills and a big bluesy finish. Lena starts out with a lot of happy-sounding melody ideas in his solo. Little ornaments are nice as well, before turning bluesier with some snappy licks and repeated riffs, and really biting articulation for a great finish, and Contraforest takes it through the melody with a nice rip into a big final chord to wrap the recording up. And that's it. It's short at just 36 minutes, but a nice way to get this jazz organ set of recordings started with these classic hard bop tunes, recalling the golden days of jazz organ. A fun romp on the inchworm standard, and a nice original ballad from Rovid. Alina's a very tasty guitarist with a warm tone, fluid lines, bluesy bite in the right spots. I'm going to keep a lookout for more of his recordings. Contraforce always sounds great on organ or piano, and his solos here put on a nice display of variety from subtle lines to exciting runs, and nice bass work too underneath keeping things groovy and good drumming from rovid steady tasty fills and a variety of feels
1: yeah i actually not only is it 36 minutes is an acceptable length for an yeah. album it's no problem but yeah six tracks i would have liked you know a few more because <laughs> mm. this was a really good record i liked it a lot too it had a lot of comfortable grooves and of course i liked the playing a lot uh, the guitar is clean up front sound and it had a beautiful ringing tone and uh, Contra Forest gets a lot of really interesting tones out of the organ. Um, he's very blues oriented. The first two tracks had that bluesy kind of feel to yeah. them. And I like the way he'll start his solos like minimally and then build them mm. into something big. He really likes that. Yeah, yeah he starts like, small and builds up. He likes to start small and build up. Exactly. I feel like I'm watching a painter improvise an epic idea from a blank canvas when I hear him play. Like he's just kind of. Doing some black dot yeah. at first, and then it's just gonna, suddenly it's becoming this epic thing. He's really good at that. Yeah, he especially on the tune in "The Inchworm." We're back to that uh, Danny Kaye yeah. track again. Uh, would be a really good example of that. And the, the simple—he starts with a simple, playful melody, and it becomes something grand in his solo. Mm-hmm. His playing brought me back to that. Last week we talked about that Schumann piece, and then the Beethoven second movement where exposure to like one theme kind of makes the other theme grow and you kind of have right. the, the feeling like this is exposed to his mind and it just kind of mm. grows like a tree right yeah it's a short album the playing is great and you will wish there were more that's what I would say yeah. I just kept playing it just put it on repeat <laughs> <laughs> but
0: fortunately we've got uh, two more recordings yeah, yeah. for you and the next one well this was the surprise pick uh, that turned out to be uh Pretty uh, interesting in a different way. Yeah, I ways. like this one too. Wow. Yeah, this was a big surprise. And this is called Move Your Feet. It's on Jazz Family label and it's by the French guitarist, Michael Valianou. He was uh, born in Paris, uh, 1985. He's now based in New York. And uh, in the little bio that I found of him, it says his passion for jazz and for all the other genres of music that he has come across while growing up as a musician in France and in the United States has allowed him to create a unique voice on his instrument. So that all the other genres stuck in my mind and I'll get to that as we go through here. So he's on electric guitar. The Hammond organist is Fred Nardine who is French also. We actually heard him once before back on episode 21 organ power wow with the saxophonist Gaia Hoelou mm-hmm. and rounding out the trio here is Andreas Svensen on drums and uh, he's uh, based in Copenhagen uh, but he's got a BA in music performance from the rhythmic music conservatory in Copenhagen, and also a master's degree in music performance from Manhattan School of Music in New York City. So I guess they all crossed paths in New York, although this recording was recorded at Le Claque Studio in Paris. And we got mostly originals here by Valianou, and starting out with a tune called At the Red Room. Uh, it gets a Roboto start, With guitar improvising over organ chords and drum fills, Svensson gets it going with a couple of measures of drums uh, setting a six-eight feel. Then Valianu takes the happy-sounding melody over the clicky swing beat. There's an ABA pattern with eight measures each, and then things change up with a slow four-beat stop-time section. Suddenly, for Valianu to start soloing, the beat returns with a slow swinging groove over walking organ bass for Valianu to continue on. it has got a really Centered and clean tone on guitar with snappy and bluesy licks. Don't get too comfortable in that groove though, <laughs> because they shift it back to the fast 6 8 as Valenu goes along with speedy licks and some fun interval play. Nice fills from Svenson on the drums there too, and back to the stop time start for a solo from Nardine. I like his lazy, carefree phrasing starting out here. They work it back to the speedy 6-8 again, and he gets really swinging with lines and some cool high held out chords. And they go on from the stop time back through another round of the melody, a section with some end phrase repeats and more licks from Valet Noom. A fun start with lots of rhythmic change-ups uh, on the way. Track 2, a really unique tune. You mentioned liking this one. Yeah,
1: I have something, in fact, to say about this one, but go ahead, I'll kind of come in when you mention it. This is another Valley New Original, of Virginia,
0: and it's really unique, as I said. First of all, what you'll notice is the the timbre, uh, starting out with clean guitar over just organ low notes, no drums, and so it 's a really soft blend, uh interesting moving guitar chords
1: and that 's that 's the part I wanted to solo out the guitar, they were like extraordinarily like beautiful to me, yeah, like they 're striking, nice. and it really made me sit up in my seat when I heard them. This is right after the uh the opening guitar yeah. like it comes into another section you'll notice it when you hear it yeah it's very unique
0: uh, along with those chords there's little rhythmic licks on the guitar and some nice double stopped lines sometimes they move in sync uh, with the interesting changing chords the organ and guitar and Svensson sneaks in with a soft cymbal roll out of around one minute and then he's on to soft brush work things get more of a pulse With a subdivided organ figures under the guitar. And Valianu and Nardin trade improvised, interestingly, seven measure phrases uh, as Mm -hmm. the tune goes along. Uh, Check out the little muted rhythmic figures Valianu does under the organ. Very tasty as well. Svensson switches to sticks as things pick up intensity in the solo exchanges, adding some tom fills. And back to just organ and guitar for those interesting chord lines and melody figures from the beginning into the undulating organ section to a soft ending. We're going to get a non-original, The Limehouse Blues. This is by Douglas Ferber and Philip Brown. It's a really old popular British tune, I guess the Limehouse District in pre-war days was the Chinatown of London. And so this tune is from 1921. You can hear other versions of it, uh, Django Reinhardt, Joe Pass, but I've never heard one quite like this. Uh, hmm. It starts out with some busy drum work and uh, deep tom sounds from Svenson. Then what they do at the beginning, playing around with the first section of the tune is very interesting. The organ and guitar work alternating three note riffs together. The meteor is kind of unique. The riffs are kind of straight feeling for two measures of four beats, but the spaces that alternate between them are three beats and then two beats, so it's really kind of unsettling. Uh, Valino splits off with a different line before the next fast swinging section of the tune, which really contrasts comes in and then he comes out of the break from there for a solo. Uh, they give the first section a Latin feel, with nice cymbal work from Svensson, and then they switch it back to swing. A nice fast boppy lines from Vallianou. Same feel switch-ups under Nardine's organ solo, uh, who also gets a swift and bouncy uh, one on this one, and once more through the melody, with the fun rhythmic change-ups and structure to finish it up. Back to Vallianou original for track 4, One Another. So softly flowing tune that gets going with 16 measures of intro of a cycle of four chords in the organ and a little guitar rhythmic figures laid on top of that. Valenu gets the melody, which gets some interesting syncopation in the ninth measure, and Nardine takes over from the 14th measure with the chord figures into a solo that has a lot of rhythmic variety. The beat is straight and soft, Svensson mixing it up with fills, and Valinu returns for a guitar solo that starts with snappy rhythmic figures. And turns more flowing and then into a lot of speedy lines. They return to the opening chord pattern, this time with Valinou joining in, and they finish with that interesting 13 measure melody. And the title track for number five, also a Valinou original Move Your Feet. It's a samba here, and they get going with a 16 measure intro, enjoying the alternating chord groove and throbbing organ bass with some little organ fills as well. Valinou takes the choppy melody made of double stops and chords. The form is kind of interesting too. It's like a A, A, B, C, A in eight measure segments, either that or just the B section is 16 measures. Uh, It's more flowing on the B and C parts there. Violinus well, solos first and his lines really snap with the groove, ending up in some bluesy double-stop lines. Nardine's got a playful solo on this one, and then they surprise with a new fun start and stop unison melody line uh, for guitar and organ over the A sections on a final run through. Good Latin beats all the way through from Svenson. Track 6, King Cobra, a Herbie Hancock tune. Uh, they keep a Latin beat idea for this tune that has different sections, first with guitar chords over a pulsing syncopated organ, then organ and guitar moving together with rising guitar, and then a line of rising intervals from descending notes. Valley new solos first, and the feel changes up to a driving swing on the way. Svensson really adds hits on his accented, syncopated phrases of the solo with nice interplay between the two. Nordin has some fun with rhythmic chords in his solo on this one, and some adventurous lines. Once more through the melody sections, and Nardine gets a little kind of swirl on his organ tone, this time going and the ending slows just a bit. Track seven, Virarica. Rica, it's also a new composition. This has a pentatonic folk song quality to the melody, hmm. uh, starting with the guitar over a soft organ. Uh, the form is interesting with a repeating A section, then a B section that has an unexpected modulation and continues on for 15 measures before another maybe new version of the A section twice over organ swells and drum fills. It comes down soft for Valenu's solo, really nice articulation and pearly notes on the guitar on this one. Nardine has flowing chords in his solo here, getting some different tones and swells, and they finish it up with just the A sections of the melody to some final ringing guitar chords. It's got a real kind of um, out west kind of uh, tone to it. Track 8, Tea Time. And it's time for the weekly seven eighth eighth two. We were two last week. <laughs> Everybody's using this time signature these days. And this is a super funky one here. Check out the groove. Uh, it's really infectious. There's an eight-measure intro to get you settled into it. The construction is a 12-bar blues kind of thing. Uh, crazy syncopation in the fourth measure. And I think there's an extra beat in the 10th measure. Uh, there's one more beat before you get to the end. Uh, they go around that twice. Nardine solos first with nicely syncopated phrases over this odd meter uh, building up some harmonic tension with outside notes towards the end. Valinu funky and fluid, also taking some harmonic diversions on his solo. He plays some cool bent and choked notes in there too, and jams out on some chords. This is my favorite solo so far on the recording. Uh, they keep a soft vamp for Svensson to do some tasty beats over, with Valino working up some ringing chords. And they take another run through the melody, but they get caught up on repeats of the ninth and 10th measures, and it finishes unresolved. And the final track. 9 Endless Fields, also a new original. It's another folk sounding melody uh, at a slow waltz tempo. There's an eight measure intro of alternating chords before the gentle guitar melody. Before we hear the repeat of the first section, there's a four measure interlude of more ominous strumming on the guitar. The next section has a modulated lift to it, then it comes back down and transforms some more with swelling organ. new comes out of that with the bluesy solo licks actually getting some Hendrix-like riffs in there. They bring it back soft for some unison guitar and organ chords, and take it out with the alternating chords from the beginning. So I found this a very enjoyable recording with a lot of depth and things to discover. The compositions are really varied in style, structure, and rhythmic feels. Violinus' original tunes often take unexpected turns. With unorthodox structures. The two folky tunes and Virginia are a nice contrast to the super funky tea time. Valley News guitar playing has a real pleasing tone and can be fluid. Or articulate with a bite when he wants. Nardine's organ playing has a wide palette of sounds from soft to swelling and his solos are creative and good drumming and accented support from Svensson all the way through as well. Definitely check this recording out and keep your ear on Michael Valianu. He's a really skillful guitarist Tasty and there's hints of those other musical influences that I mentioned at the beginning in that folk and uh, that little sort of, I felt Hendrixy sort of uh, burning up there for a bit.
1: Yeah, for me, Valianu was the the standout player on this album. Everybody was great, but I mean, um, just that uh, that chord pattern that he um, does on Virginia. And I also I kind of didn't mention this when you were talking about the track, but the theme on Villa Rica has a a great kind of it's got this folk song feel over a jazzy rhythm, and I found it really catchy. Yeah, and the organ's underpinning of that theme was really gorgeous too. His solos and chords are just attractive throughout. He was always grabbing mm. my ear. I liked his ear for chord voicings as well. He's a little different than what you normally hear. And especially in tea time, I liked his uh, chords in tea time. Mm. I think this is an album to sit down and listen to and really enjoy. And I think this is a guitarist that I really want to keep my ear on. Yeah, very you know, exciting player. Th- this was a real surprise for me. I was a really, um, I, I re- that's one of my favorite things to happen in music, when you just don't really expect much and then something
0: Yeah, kind of magical
1: happens. Like wow, you know.
0: That's what I want to really do. You know, with the jazz picks in this podcast, I find something and say, "I haven't heard of this guy. Let's check it out." And then I'm
1: I'm just glad it's still happening to me in my fifties. For most people, it ends after college. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But they already know what they like, and that's it for the next uh, eighty years.
0: All right, we're going to finish things up with a really great recording here. I was looking forward to getting this out. This came out May 5th, and it's on one of our favorite labels, Positome, and the organist Jim Alfredson and his new recording family business. So Alfredson's a Michigan-based organist. He plays in a lot of genres, specializing in Hammond B3 and other vintage keyboards and all kinds of stuff from soul jazz to blues to progressive rock and he's played with such names as Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Taj Mahal, David Sanborn, and Randy Brecker, to name a few. And his al- albums are also wide ranging from solo synth to soul jazz. In fact, we heard him once before with Michael Deese on Give It All You Got. Uh, that was way back in episode seven, Soaring Sopranos and Omnipotent Organs. So Alfredson's here on organ and also Clevinet on tracks of one and four. We'll get wow. to that as we uh, go on. He's got Will Bernard on guitar, who's a guitarist from Berkeley, California, but now in New York. The great Michael Deese on trombone, Diego Rivera, tenor sax, Alex Sipiagin, Trumpet and Flughorn. We've heard all these guys lots of times on the podcast, mm. uh, that great cast of Positone. I feel like I know them at this point, you know? <laughs> yeah. EJ Strickland on drums, who is the identical twin brother of saxophonist Marcus Strickland. We've got some extra percussion on tracks three, four, seven, and nine by Kevin Bujol Jones. And I want to give a little bit of credit. Also, here for the horn arrangements done by Chris Glassman, because they really add a lot, getting the lines really done nicely for all the horns. And as always, the great producer of Positone, Mark Free, who comes up with a lot of concepts for these albums and uh, puts everything together. The engineer here, Nick O'Toole. And we're going to start out with Alani Smith, Dr. Alani Smith tune peeping this is from uh, 1967 Lou Donaldson's recording uh shingling uh that had uh um, Blue Mitchell on trumpet on there if I remember right
1: I think I think my dad had that album yeah <laughs> yeah it's one of those uh in the mystical uh record collection right yeah well first of all
0: just soak up this great super tight groove here and enjoy the great sound quality uh this recording is good all around but the organ just sounds fantastic Uh, Basically this tune is a 12-bar blues. The trio goes around it once, and next time uh, Rivera joins in, and Bernard works the licks with him. Check out that tight guitar! Oh, it's really, really. This groove yeah. is great. Rivera yeah. solos first on this tune. The combination of the syncopated organ, bass, punchy chords, Bernard's guitar interjections are just so funky. Uh, Bernard's solos on guitar next. Bluesy, nice lower register licks, double stops, all very tasty. And then Alfredson cleans up, and he has great. Punchy repeated notes in his solo, little trills, falls into bluesy phrases. Uh, everyone's back for another round of the melody with some final phrase repeats. Then what gets uh, added in as they groove out, but clavinet. That's like chocolate chips on chocolate ice cream levels of funkiness, you know. (laughs) Rivera blows some more over the groove uh, at the end that they keep going. And I think my sideburns grew a bit while I was listening to this. Right?
1: Was this was that the album that Stevie Wonder did "Superstition" on, or was that a different one? What was the the keyboard instrument? I don't know.
0: Oh, you mean the clavinet?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that sound. It's that sound. Yeah. 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 Stevie Wonder had sideburns then, too. (laughs) I think everyone did in the 70s, yeah.
0: All right, track two is a contribution from Michael Deese. It's called Four Miles. It's got a flowing 16 bar organ intro, and then we get the horn melody, all three horn players here in unison. It really swings, recalling Miles Davis's. four, uh, you know, if you know that melody, and it's similarly 32 measures, mostly with the same two halves, but a different ending into a solo break on um, the second half of it there. And uh, Dees is up first. He breezes along with effortless swing and nice little hesitations. Sipiagan follows with a lyrical and melodic solo, nice playful final line in it in Rivera's fluid and swinging with some fast triplet lines thrown in. They return to the intro idea for Alfredson to start out, building up some tension over Strickland's fills before launching into the melody chords with a swinging solo. Bernard gets a bouncy guitar solo before Strickland gets around on the drums and once more through the melody to wrap it up. Track 3 is called Foster Blues, this is also an Alfredson original, I'm assuming it's for Ronnie Foster. Great shuffle feel on this tune. The organ trio takes it around once. It's not a 12-bar blues, but rather an 18-bar form with little harmonic twists in the 9th and 13th, measures to make you smile. Uh, They repeat (laughs) that, and the horns are in with little harmonized hits and answering phrases to the organ melody. A nice little trumpet solo line in the final section of that part there. very good arranging by Chris Glassman. Alfredson is out for a solo first. This is a great gospel-y tone here, super speedy lines and bluesy licks, an out-of-sight solo. Dees is next, smooth with nice melodic ideas over the chord changes, and Sipiagin keeps that fluid kind of movement going as well. A little sassy half valve in there, clean high notes before some double-time licks. Bernard's after that on guitar, some great bluesy licks. I love the little choked notes he gets in there as well. And Rivera gets a relaxed and flowing solo on this tune as well twice around the melody just like the opening to a funky vamped groove with horn hits to stretch it out and you won't want this tune to end the groove is
1: just Mm -hmm. so good yeah this album was sort of like that i mean you gave this to me early too so i was really grooving to it before we even chose Mm. it for the podcast yeah
0: another alfredson original the side eye for track four and actually comes to be that it it was okay that the previous groove ended because this one is a killer groove as well and <laughs> strictly gets it groups, going yeah on the drums with a funky eight measure intro, Uh, organ bass picks up into some super tight funky rhythmic guitar and organ interplay another nice horn arrangement on this tune uh, with hits between the organ lines, longer swelling notes as well individual horn trades and pauses too, it keeps it changing up as it moves along, awesome syncopated organ bass lines Uh, Rivera gets a solo over great ghosty organ chords and then Alfredson solos on his own next with huge swells, staccato Percussive hits and the clavinet gets thrown in there as well. Oh man, Uh Deez is up next with some tricky slide work and growls, and Bernard follows uh, full of funkiness and tricky triplets in his lines. Sipiagin lets the high notes fly in his solo here. They bring it back down for another run through the sections with the horns. Chalk 5 is called Verna. And it's a uh, Alfredson original. And so, before we just OD on funkiness, we get a little break with this flowing
1: waltz tune here. It's got a breezy feel to it, so it's still kind of positive, you know. Yeah,
0: it's got an intro with horns. Uh, joining in on lines halfway through. The first melody section is taken by Alfredson for 20 measures. It repeats with the horns joining in on an arrangement to a different and longer ending into new sections that build up. Strickland gets the excitement up with nice cymbal work, and then it comes down for a tasty guitar solo from Bernard. Great organ swells underneath, and it gets into a more driving waltz groove uh, towards the end. Uh, The beat simmers down for Alfredson's solo start, with soft high register melody lines. He soon gets that kind of spinning Leslie sound for some gospel sounds uh, a bit before tying things back to the melody and a return of the horns. And Alfredson gets more inspired and continues on ringing out some really intense tones that then calm down and take us to church with just a solo Mm -hmm. rubato organ for an ending of of lovely held chords. I
1: want to say the uh, guitar solo in this, uh, the words I used to describe it are airborne and freedom loving. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's just made me feel mm. you know, like life was great. Yeah. I liked it a lot. This, this whole album is just full of wonderful energy. We should just drop that track into communist country so that they just know <laughs> what life can be yes. like, you know? Track 6, Winkin' Blinkin' and Nod,
0: another Alfredson original. A cool speedy modal tune with fun interplay between the horns and organ riffs. There's some fun topsy-turvy trumpet lines from the 33rd measure and individual lines for the bone and sax as well. Alfredson solos first with fiery speedy lines, Rivera's next, then Sipiagin who really rips up through the harmonic changes on this one. Bernard follows on guitar with some tricky rhythmic ideas. Deez next sounding buttery with fast slide work (laughs) through that topsy-turvy section uh, even at this fast tempo. They all trade some eights with Strickland on the drums and take another run through the melody sections and a little bit of fun with the horns on the end to finish it up. Track 7, another Alfredson original REO town and for our non-US-based listeners, REO Town is a district in Lansing, Michigan. It's considered the birthplace of the automobile in the US, Uh and so it's named after REO, Ransom Eli Olds. Uh So he was an automobile pioneer, and his name is where we get Oldsmobile, and also the REO brand
1: (laughs) and i guess that led to the ario speedway (laughs) uh, this i'm thinking the ario speedway name probably comes from that. yeah that's where it comes from right okay yeah so a
0: little bit of u.s uh, industrial history centered around michigan
1: how about that anyway time to chill out
0: with a relaxed latiny groove the trio starts it out with an 8-measure intro, and Jones's extra percussion stands out on this one. Uh, there's a smooth, harmonized horn-arranged melody, seems to be A-B-A-B, a, B, with the sax and trombone on the A sections, and Sipiagin taking the B section. In the second B section, the sax and bone have some supporting lines to fill it out. Rivera solos first, sounding smooth and smoky, but also snappy with rhythmic phrases. Alfredson has bluesy lines mixed into more explorative ideas and chords in this solo, and it sounds like Sipiagin's on flugelhorn here. He gets all fluffy and flowing with some really tasty licks. There's another breeze through the melody sections, and then a little groove continuation for Alfredson to play on a bit to a slowed ending. Track eight, Strange Matter, and this is Alfredson's tune as well. Well, that would be a matter of time. You can say 6-4, but that's just to start. Uh, They get you used to it with a great bass groove on the organ for 4 bars, and then the horns join in for hits with the guitar for 4 more. Alfredson takes the melody, and the first 8 measure section stays in 6-4. Then the horns have some hits in a 4 measure section of 5-4, the last note of which is actually the first beat of a new 12 measure section of flowing horn lines that goes to 4-4. Then four measures of 5-4 and the last beat again is the start of two measures of 4-4 to finish it up. Strange, indeed. Hmm. Uh, Alfredson gets back to the 6-4 uh, with a few measures of groove before starting his solo. It's funky with some dazzling speedy lines thrown in, sticking on the 6-4 for an extended time, uh, but then working through the other sections as well. Uh, they go through the melody again, but stick on the final 5-4 section for Strickland to mix things up on the drums underneath. Then the horns drop out, but return to end it up with a final hold. And the last track, another Alfredson original, Easy Breezy. And this one's got a breezy feel for sure, but it's mm. in 7-4, or at least alternating 4 and 3 beat measures, but it, it sort of has a constant 7 beat to it. They get it going with a hypnotic intro groove of guitar riffs over organ bass for 8 measures, with some added ghostly organ tones on the second half of the intro. Uh, Jones's percussion adds to the groove nicely. It seems to be a A 32-measure AABA form, with the guitar taking the first section. Sipiagan takes the next A section with harmonized horns under him. The B section contrasts with more moving horn and guitar parts, and then a final horn-arranged section. Sipiagan solos first, sounds like flugelhorn again here, melodic, smooth, and silky, even when reaching up high at the end. Rivera follows, keeping it with a flowing kind of feel. Tasty guitar work under him from Bernard, and Deese rises dreamily on his solo with a great tone, getting that longing feeling that only trombone can get, but he also mixes in some speedy slide work and interval ideas, and Alfredson follows that with a relaxed melodic solo. Uh, The horns are back for the final B and A sections to give it a pretty ending with an exchange back and forth of the first melody line. We heard in the beginning of the tune between guitar and organ, and then each of the horns gets a turn, ending with Sipiagin's line to a final hold. So I thought this is a fabulous recording. It's definitely going to be in my physical collection. Great original <laughs> my, tunes. Yeah, from, mine too. <laughs> yeah, from Alfredson. One from Deese, plus Lonnie Smith. There's some tricky time signatures but everything grooves sometimes it's almost frightening how great the grooves are out right here there's plenty of bluesiness and some other latin feels too uh, the horn arrangements are creative and make the tunes special all these guys are big-name players And put on their usual show of fine horn solos Bernard was new to me and I enjoyed his feel and great solos on guitar too. Strickland's tight and creative on drums but most of all Alfredson blows you away with his Hammond playing his technique and solo ideas are awesome but he has that special feel for the Hammond and knows how to get the best sounds and effects for every musical situation I'd put him at the top level of players that we've heard on any of the recordings in the podcast incredible sound on the recording for the organ and all around as well. Great job by Mark Free and Nick O'Toole.
1: Yeah, and this is this is a very old school sound on this album as well, just mm. with the, all these old grooves. Now, the thing about the grooves I want to say is that these grooves, these grooves are just so much better than what you hear today in like you know <laughs> popular music. music yeah. But but they're not hard grooves the way that you heard in early seventies like music from like the the Ohio Players or you know bands like that. But it falls somewhere in between and it's more jazz than anything, you know, like R&B like Mm. that. But um, we're forgetting how to do this. And I think we need to remember and people should really hear this album so that they can just get their groove back on. There were great solos on this record, too. And one of the things I liked about this album that you didn't mention, because you pretty much mentioned everything else I said here, is that it's a large ensemble and they all get to solo on certain tracks, like in Foster Blues. And wink and blink and nod. You're just wondering when the whole solo <laughs> section is going to end because there's just a new instrument coming in all the time. It's like, yeah. it's almost like this big, it, it kind of sets this atmosphere of just, you're at this big party and you really don't know what's happening. I really enjoyed mm. that a lot. Yeah. I also liked, um, let's see, the organ solo in Strange Matter, Yeah, which I thought, which kind of stood out for me, although he was great really throughout with these kind of like almost percussive things he did on the organ too to kind of accentuate the groove. I like the way a lot of the tracks settle into a kind of vamp at the end. Like the, it doesn't just end with a theme. Yeah. Like it, there's sort of a coda at the end. And the, yeah, I like that too. Yeah, it's was, it was a nice, it, it was just kind of a unique and fresh album, even though it has like a very old school sound as well. So it's traditional, but it's kind of not, but it really is. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's really something I yeah. highly recommend. It. This was my album of the week of all the six that we've heard. The sound in the lower end was really good too. Yeah, I want this on CD. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, it does. Right, it does. The low end of the organ, the bass pedals, Mm -hmm. and the swells, the percussive things the Hammond can do—they all really jump right out of the speakers and uh, hit you there.
1: So yeah, I was I was liking this from the first notes that I heard in track one. Yeah, it just kept going from there. It's it's not. I should mention it's not a party album. It's a groove album, but it's not. You know, it's not really a doesn't have that party feel to it it's something to listen to
0: yeah this one was the one that got me inspired to do an or another organ episode so so (laughs) thanks for that positone Uh, we like almost uh, everything almost every month there's a great positone release that i really got to hear so yeah Uh, and yeah so that's it for this episode next week we're going to do something a little different i think we're going uh, into the chambers again aren't we
1: yeah, we well we've actually got a theme, which is weird because um, we've got um, you have a you have a solo one, right? See, I don't. I have like a violin and you know, harpsichord or forte piano. Then I have a piano trio, and then I have a quartet, and you have that. So we can just do some musical counting and say solo, duo, trio, quartet, and that's what we're gonna do. We have Man, an odd theme.
0: Got a really nice piano and bass duo that uh, you're going to want to check out and yeah, should we've be got some of our, design. one of
1: our favorite composers, CPE Bach. That's Carl oh, right. Philip Emanuel, the oldest surviving Bach's son. We're big fans of his music on this podcast. I'll explain more, yeah. but why uh, next week? Yeah. <laughs> I think um, I'm going to mention this next week too, but I think uh, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, you know, he had patron saints. Hmm. I think um, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach should be the, the patron musician of the uh, postmodern, age that we live in, because he's yeah. got a lot of the qualities that a lot of postmodern people have. <laughs> But in a good way, in his case, you know. Right. Of, uh, but he kind of plays into that, yeah. So if you want to know what those recordings
0: are uh, not too long after this episode gets published, I'll put up the playlist for next week on Deezer, and there'll be a link to it also on the Facebook page. As always, Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Remember those other music-related podcasts as we sign off here. The little promos for each one will be at the end of the episode, so stick around and listen to those. Any final
1: words, Mike? No, just looking forward to next week. It was kind of a disappointing classical week this week, I thought. I did like the Erkis Ventura recording though. Yeah. And the first Cabaldi I liked too. I shouldn't really complain, but uh, yeah, don't I don't know. Doubt. it wasn't it was good, but it wasn't exciting. I need something exciting. Maybe next week. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. There's always yeah. more.
0: Six more recordings coming your way in episode. 117 so keep listening and we'll see you again next time gerald albright rhea schneider charlie hunter Duke robelard sean jones walter beasley steve swallow something came from baltimore's a jazz blues and r&b podcast and radio show and it's not really about baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that's something came from baltimore and be a part
1: of that Be More Music scene.
0: Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Danuso, Makatani, and Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscroll, mostly.
1: Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe D'Amino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, maria schneider and countless others find our weekly show on mixcloud subscribe to the interviews via itunes and youtube we are neon jazz same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard a review of a single jazz standard through music history and stories and this is aj and this is johnny if you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards